morning, everyone. Glad you're with us. It is Friday, September 29th, and right now the government is open for now, but we are on the brink of a shutdown with no deal in sight to stop it after a night of failure on Capitol Hill. The clock is ticking away with less than two days left. Here's what happened while you were sleeping. This vote, the yeas are 191, the nays are 237. The bill is not passed without objection. A motion to consider is laid on the table. Overnight, the chaos and division among House Republicans was on full display. One of their own spending bills went down in flames after 27 Republican lawmakers voted against it. Just hours from now, Speaker McCarthy trying to hold a last-ditch vote on his stopgap bill to keep the government funded temporarily, but it does not look like he even has enough votes in his own party for that. He is struggling with a GOP rebellion, and he is facing the real threat of losing his job this morning. Here's why a shutdown matters for you. Nearly 4 million federal employees will stop being paid. That includes more than 1 million active duty troops. Essential workers will keep working without pay, while others will be furloughed. The White House is warning a shutdown could lead to huge travel delays and training for desperately needed air traffic controllers will stop. The IRS will stop processing most tax refunds, and it will be a lot harder for you to get in touch with the agency if you need help with your taxes. Food stamps for millions of poor Americans could be in danger, along with housing assistance for the elderly, disabled, and other low-income tenants who rely on that federal aid. There could be a serious impact on health and public safety. The FDA could be forced to delay food safety inspections across the country. And for students, federal loans and financial aid programs will likely be disrupted. A majority of national parks are expected to close if the government shuts down. In previous shutdowns, D.C. has literally become a mess. Back in 2018 and 2019, we saw trash cans overflowing, garbage scattered across the National Mall right by the U.S. Capitol, and Washington's iconic monument as the shutdown dragged on. We won't be able to enjoy the little things on social media like the National Park Service's wildly popular Fat Bear Week, which is supposed to start on Wednesday. We are told the bears will keep getting fat. That's a joke, but a lot of serious stuff here. All right, Phil. Yeah, so Poppy, those are the consequences. Fat Bear Week, nothing to joke about, by the way. It's very entertaining. Uh, but the consequences are real. So too is how we got here. And I think this is important to underscore that this is a very different level of dysfunction than we've seen. Now, keep in mind, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, has had control of his conference since January, when he was elected Speaker after this. The Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the state of California has received 203, 203, 202, 201, 201, 201, 201, 201, 200, 200, 200, 213, 214, 216. Having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. Not one, not two, but 15 votes for McCarthy to secure the votes to become Speaker. The longest contest in 164 years. If you want to understand what's really gotten Capitol Hill, what's really gotten House Republicans toward this government shutdown, that's a good place to start. Now, that ended with this, obviously, the Speaker's gavel for Kevin McCarthy. And it underscored that he is willing to grind it out to find an outcome, something he's tried to do throughout the course of the last nine months. But this moment in the lead up to this moment 
is extremely important to understand why we are in the place that we are right now. First, of course, there was the problem McCarthy had counting the votes just in and of themselves. Take a listen. Do you think you have the votes to be elected speaker tonight? Yes. You do? Yes. And you'll be able to flip Rosendale and Crane? I'll have the votes. What are, you, what are their concerns? Because I count. He can count, but he could not count correctly. He went on to fail several votes after he said he would have the votes because he could count. So that's one issue. It's a very fluid conference and pinning them down and having a majority with such a slim conference and such a slim majority is very complicated. The other, and this is more important, I think, uh, to a large degree, is what McCarthy had to give hardline conservative Republicans in order to secure their votes. Here are some of the concessions, and I want to point out a few that really matter. One member can call for a motion to oust the speaker. Critical point. Pair of debt ceiling, pair of debt ceiling increases with spending cuts. That led to another critical moment here. Move all 12 individual appropriations bills. That's a huge problem they have right now. More Freedom Caucus representatives on committees. That has been an important element of this. Cap discretionary spending at 2022 levels. Impossible when you only control one chamber of Congress. And then, of course, the Committee on Weaponization of the Federal Government. So why does that actually matter? Well, when you think through how this actually works, this is the threat that's hanging over McCarthy, why he's been so unwilling to work with Democrats. The debt ceiling increases uh, with spending cuts. That has driven them to this moment. Their inability to move 12 individual appropriations bills in large part because they can't hit those 2022 levels. That has driven everything. The debt deal, though, the debt ceiling and how they got here. That was a critical bipartisan moment for Speaker Kevin McCarthy, one in which he worked with Democrats, shook hands with President Biden and reached a bipartisan agreement. What did that deal actually say? Two-year spending caps. A bunch of wins, at least in McCarthy's view, for Republicans to raise the debt ceiling. However, even as McCarthy called it historic, House Republicans, hardline House Republicans, made clear they had serious problems. Take a listen. We're concerned that the fundamental commitments that allowed Kevin McCarthy to uh, assume the speakership have been violated as a consequence of the debt limit deal. Now, here's what's different. That's obviously Matt Gates. He has been a thorn in McCarthy's side to understate things to some degree over the course of his nine months as Speaker of the House. There is conservatives raising concerns about bipartisan deals, and then there are hardline conservatives actually doing something on those concerns. Less than a week later, right before you heard that Gates sound right there to our colleague Manu Raju, this happened after the debt deal. This was the first sign that things were about to get very bad. Inability to pass a procedural motion, failing 206 to 220, didn't get a ton of attention. It was an embarrassment at the time. But what it was, was a sign of what was to come. And that included a multitude of failures over and over and over again. What do I mean? July 27th, failure to move forward on a spending bill, pulling it entirely. September 14th, pulling back a Pentagon spending bill, usually the lowest hanging fruit with Republicans. September 19th, failing on a procedural motion for that spending bill. September 21st, failing again on the procedural motion, not even getting to that bill. That underscored the moment that they're in, particularly because this was all happening about a month before they had a spending deadline just to overcome a shutdown threat. And this had nothing to do with addressing that shutdown threat. So where does that actually leave things right now? And I think this is an important point here. When you look at the stopgap bill that McCarthy is trying to put on the floor today, there's a reality. He doesn't have the votes going into this day where their one proposal, not even to keep the government open, but just to start negotiations with the Senate, with the White House, they don't have the votes. Hard no votes from at least, at least six, seven, eight Republicans, likely no votes from an additional four. And why does this connect to those speaker votes back in, 20, uh, back in uh, January of this year? Well, 
Matt Gates never voted for McCarthy. Matt Rosendale never voted for McCarthy. Eli Crane never voted for McCarthy. Lauren Boebert never voted for McCarthy. This all connects, and you could see this coming back in January. Now, back in January, when this all ended, McCarthy had this to say about the process. Take a listen. So it's better that we go through this process right now so we can achieve the things we want to achieve for the American public, what our commitment was. So if this takes a little longer and it doesn't meet your deadline, that's okay. Because it's not, it's, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And if we finish well, we'll be very successful. You- that was the optimistic and not isolated view of what that 15-vote speaker battle would actually mean for this conference going forward. Flash forward to yesterday, where Republicans are still struggling just to pass their own Congress or stopgap resolution. This is what McCarthy said. Have you actually gamed out a plan B if this falls apart? Yeah, well, why do I tell you? I mean, so, I mean, who? who what do you mean? I, in this job, you got to have A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Okay, so what letter are you on now? I haven't spelled my name out completely. Maintaining some humor, underscoring that the how you finish that he framed back in January. Right now, success, which is what he was pointing towards, is a long way away. Poppy? Oh, thank you for all of that. There's a lot happening on Capitol Hill. Let's bring in our Lauren Fox with more. Is there a plan B, C, D, E, F, G this morning? Or just plan A that looks like it's going to fail? I don't know what letter of the alphabet we are on at this point, but here's what you can expect in the House of Representatives today. The House Rules Committee is going to convene around 8 a.m. this morning. They're going to try to finish up a rule that would have a short-term spending bill head to the House floor. The problem with the short-term spending bill, as Phil laid out beautifully, is the reality the votes are not there at this moment. Then, around 11.15, 11.30 this morning, the House will move to a procedural vote to put that bill on the floor. Here's where things get dicey for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. This is a procedural vote. Typically, the majority just puts up these votes, they pass, and then there's usually a larger question on the underlying bill. In this case, and as has been the case over the last several weeks, as hardliners have dug in, those procedural votes are getting harder and harder for Kevin McCarthy. So expect that if the votes don't pass on that procedural vote. You can't move to the next step, which is putting the final bill on the floor. This is going to be a very big day for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy because he knows he likely does not have the votes for this short-term bill. That means he's going to be basically choosing what does he do next? Does he turn to Democrats? Does he try to work with them knowing that if he does, that likely means the end of his speakership? Poppy? And that's the question. Do you believe there will be a vote to vacate him, a motion to vacate vote? Well, certainly all indications right now from hardliners is they are preparing for that. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges for them, though, Poppy, is that who are they going to run to replace Kevin McCarthy? Who actually wants this job of corralling this very divided Republican conference right now? And one of the key things that you can look to is there have been some names floated. Republican whip Tom Emmer, he told our colleagues last night, he doesn't want the job. Don't look at him. Don't think that he would take the job. He doesn't want the job. There are other names floating out there. Mark Green, someone else who says he does not want the job. Uh, (coughs) Kevin Hearn, the leader of the Republican uh, Study Committee, he has an influence in this conference. But does he want the job? I mean, this is a very hard position because at any moment, any member can turn on you and bring a motion to try and oust you from your job, Poppy. That's the deal they made. So now we'll see what actually happens. Lauren, thank you for the reporting on the Hill. Phil, back to you. 
Thanks, Poppy. Over to the White House, where preparations are being made for that government shutdown that now seems all but inevitable. Priscilla Alvarez is there for us this morning. And Priscilla, I think one of the questions I have right now is the White House has made clear they feel like they have a deal, right? That this was the deal that they signed for the debt limit. This should not even be a question right now. But Republicans on Capitol Hill, they've been focused on border security. Senators are trying to figure out some type of border security measure to really thread the needle here. Does the White House feel like they have to respond on the border, which is a real issue? Well, they're responding by noting what exactly a shutdown means for the Border Patrol agents that Republicans are talking about. And that means that thousands of Border Patrol agents are going to go without pay. They'll continue to carry out their law enforcement duties, but they won't get paid for it. And the other note that the White House is making is that cities uh, in the interior, as well as the border, won't get the federal funds that they need to shelter migrants. So the White House is taking the opportunity here to note the consequences of what a shutdown would look like for the border. But of course, Phil, this is a delicate time for the White House when it comes to the U.S.-Mexico border. Border crossings have been going up. It's put this politically fraught issue at the forefront and caused concern within the White House. But the opportunity they're seeing now is noting that the GOP proposals could potentially uh, result in eliminating uh, CBP personnel, as well as the fact that in the event of a shutdown, a lot of these folks are going to have to work without pay. Yeah, it's a great point. In terms of the White House itself, having covered a lot of these, it's always interesting to see how staff's trying to figure out how to prepare. We've seen, I think my email inbox has shown from a communications perspective, they're certainly fully engaged on their rapid response, how they're trying to frame all of this. How are they preparing uh, for what now seems like an inevitability? Well, there's certainly a steady drumbeat of press releases, all of which are focused on what would happen in the event of a shutdown. What happens with federal agencies and what does that mean for Americans? Today, for example, the focus is on this on small businesses and the fact that the Small Business Administration would stop processing new business loans. But then there's also the very real impacts of there not being enough uh, funds for recovery efforts, those FEMA funds that we have talked about before. The focus right now is simply on any sort of response in the event of a natural disaster, not so much the recovery projects because they're so slim on funds. Then, too, is the risk of millions of women and children going without food assistance. And, of course, Phil, millions of federal workers not getting paid. To give you a glimpse of what that looks like inside the White House, Phil, some senior aides are having to learn the jobs of junior aides to get by in the event of a shutdown when those workers are furloughed. Yeah, learning that the junior aides actually work on a lot of stuff and they use computers and technology, which can be complicated for us older people <laughs> sometimes. Priscilla Alvarez, appreciate your reporting as always. Bobby? Security preparations underway as former President Trump's $250 million civil lawsuit. That trial begins here in New York on Monday. We'll talk about key witnesses who could take the stand. And mind-blowing, an unmitigated disaster. That's how one Republican source described yesterday's first impeachment inquiry hearing against President Biden. We'll play for you the Republican witness testimony that clearly undercut the Republicans' own argument. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Look at the nation's capital this morning that is currently open for now. But look at that. We are less than two days away from a government shutdown. And yet yesterday, House Republicans spent six of those precious hours leading an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Republicans are attempting to make the case that the president profited from his son Hunter's business dealings. Here's a bit of what their own Republican witnesses said on the stand. Are you presenting any firsthand witness account of crimes committed by the president of the United States? No, I'm not. I have not. Uh, I have not. I do not believe that the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. I am not here today to even suggest that there was corruption, fraud, or any wrongdoing. One, one senior Republican aide described the hearing as, quote, an unmitigated disaster, saying, quote, you want witnesses that make your case. Picking witnesses that refute House Republican arguments for impeachment is mind-blowing. Nevertheless, House Oversight Chair James Comer now says he'll issue subpoenas for Hunter Biden's bank records. Joining us now, CNN anchor and senior political analyst John Avalon, Washington Post political video editor Joyce Coe, and CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Ellie, I want to start with you because... This wasn't the, the opening hearing of an impeachment inquiry is not necessarily the hearing that's designed to lay out all the smoking guns and essentially have everybody decide that everyone is guilty. But Republicans controlled the hearing, the witnesses, the framing of the hearing, and they got run over yesterday. Yeah. And that's not my saying that. That's members of House Republican leadership, their advisors saying that repeatedly. How? What, what a complete disaster and embarrassment. And you're right, Phil. The first hearing traditionally is not necessarily where you have to make the whole right. case, but you have to have something. You don't want your own witnesses essentially turning on you like we just saw. And for contrast, when we were in the impeachment inquiry stage in Donald Trump's first impeachment, the one related to his attempt to shake down Ukraine, during that process, we heard first person testimony from Marie Yovanovitch, from Alexander Vindman, from Bill Taylor, from all these people who've become familiar, who were giving you direct evidence that was relevant to impeachment. Here, they're still looking. And God bless them. You have that. They have the House majority. You can do what you want. You can subpoena what you want. You can investigate what you want. But I think they got a little, well, quite a bit ahead of themselves here by calling this hearing to a start when they just don't have the evidence. A couple of things we don't know. We don't know if there will be another hearing. We don't know if they will subpoena President Biden. We don't know if articles of impeachment will be brought what we do know is the time that was spent and chosen to be spent in this moment. And what was interesting is that Chair Comer said yesterday, John, that this inquiry, this team, et cetera, is deemed essential, which means they will keep doing this work through a shutdown. It's essential for their short-term political purposes. It's not essential to the functioning of government, nor is it essential from any constitutional standard when it comes to actual impeachment. You know, Comer begins by saying there's a mountain of evidence, which is completely refuted by his own witnesses who say there's no direct evidence. He did talk about, I don't know if we have the sound, we'll play it later in the show for sure, but do you remember that moment when Comer talked about, the, and I'm paraphrasing here, two wire transfers from yeah. China uh, at, at an important moment, right? I think those are things we need more details on. Look, we all, it's perfectly legitimate to get more information. 
Yeah. Um, but not at the standard of an impeachment inquiry, which has a historic standard. It's only happened four yeah. times in our history, five if you include Nixon. You're saying get that first. Get that first. This is just a fishing expedition for blatantly partisan purposes without the kind of evidence necessary to this constitutional standard. And, and saying it's something versus showing something is very different. Big time. And I think that's the biggest thing. On those wire transfers, that was when Hunter Biden was living with Joe Biden at his yes. residence, which is why, you know, uh, Biden folks say that that's why the address was on it with those transfers. But to your point, like these are things that raise questions. And I think the, the reality, as I think a lot of Democrats have acknowledged, of Everything that Hunter Biden was doing, trying to trade on the name while it happens in Washington on a regular basis, looks really bad. I think the question in terms of if you're controlling the narrative, you're controlling the framing, how do you get this far ahead of yourself and then end up with something like yesterday? Well, I think that was a big question going into this impeachment inquiry in the first place is how do you what do you do when there is no evidence? Um, and if you don't have witnesses that are being presented with any firsthand knowledge of this, um, I don't think anyone is questioning that. Hunter Biden did accept payments from Chinese nationals, but you have to, uh, in exchange for his father's influence, but you have to be able to prove that the president himself uh, also used his power to then benefit his family and enrich his family. So, I, you know, in talking to a lot of strategists, Democratic and Republican strategists, that is kind of the big question is how do they, what do they do when they don't find any evidence? And what do they do when this does not amount to um, if they don't find evidence, and what is this, mm -hmm. what what happens if they, if this doesn't really amount to anything substantial? And to to that point, there was some conspicuous sleight of hand, I think, going on by Representative Comer in his opening statement. He kept on saying the Bidens or the Biden family, but he couldn't say in any kind of good faith linking to President Biden. And he kept talking about the mass of documents, thousands and thousands. Fine. I mean, I very much have an open mind. I'm curious. I want to see what they have. Do any of those wire transfers? link up to anything, right. but, but man, look before you leap. Can you give us, you're so good at always explaining this with the historical context. It's not normal to have this many impeachment inquiries in this short a span of time. Not remotely. I mean, the first impeachment inquiry is Andrew Johnson after the Civil War. The second, you got to fast forward 100 plus years to Richard Nixon. Then you've got Bill Clinton, and then you've got two Trumps, right? Both of which, by the way, I would argue, hit that standard. And this is simply a tit for tat acceleration cycle. And, and by the way, not for nothing, but the split screen yesterday between, you know, President Biden giving a speech about threats to democracy at John, McCain. At Institute, the McCain Institute. <laughs> right, by bipartisanship. The way. McCain Institute in Arizona. And, and this, uh, you know, sort of farcical uh, impeachment inquiry by historic standards. Uh, that tells you everything you need to know about the bizarro state of our politics right now. Bizarro, specific term. Bizarro world. Yeah, that's, no, that's a historical yeah. reference. <laughs> yes, and it's very important to have that. To that point, and I, I, I'm glad that Joe brought this up. You know, watching the speech yesterday, knowing the preparations heading into the speech, okay, let's take a listen to something that President Biden said. I'm here to speak about another threat to our democracy that we all too often ignore. The threat to our political institutions, to our Constitution itself, and the very character of our nation. There's an extremist movement does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy, the MAGA movement. But there's no question that today's Republican Party is driven and intimidated by MAGA Republican extremists. Trump says the Constitution gave him, quote, the right to do whatever he wants as president, end of quote. I've never heard a president say that in jest. Fourth speech from the president on democracy. Uh, and on the stakes, really the through line from his campaign announcement in 2019 to now and his campaign in 2024. Um, and yet the chaos on Capitol Hill, impeachment inquiries, 
the Republican campaign, is the message going to be as effective as Democrats think it was in the midterms? You know, I think the president is going to have to do more. Now we've had four years of the Biden administration and looking forward into 2024. I think that this message will resonate. It will continue to resonate um, among certainly Democrats and his base of supporters. But he's going to have to do more because there are a lot of dissatisfied voters out there who have seen four years of his administration are dissatisfied with the economy, his handling on immigration, complaints about his age. We saw that in the Washington Post polling just this past uh, this past week with Biden, you know, trailing Trump by these 10 points. Yeah, it, it will be a central theme, but I think he has a record now, which is different than 2020 that he's going to have to talk about. All right, guys, appreciate it. As always, Thank thanks so much. Happening today, more auto workers could walk off the job. That could happen within hours this morning. We'll give you the latest on the strike, the negotiations, and what the, the Bill Ford himself is telling his employees about politicians getting involved. And new claims of racist taunts at Tesla plants. Details on the allegations in a lawsuit filed against the electric car maker. What's next? Well, the two-week-long auto strike could expand even more today. A union source tells CNN that the United Auto Workers President Sean Fain is set to update members on the state of negotiations at 10 a.m. Eastern. And if the union decides there has not been enough progress in these talks, it will announce new targets for the strike, meaning it's going to get bigger. UAW members at those facilities would walk off the job and onto the picket line today at noon. Phoebe Wall-Howard is an automotive reporter for a great publication, the Detroit Free Press. Phoebe, it's great to have you. Good morning. I was so struck um, yesterday, reading this piece you did, you got the transcript of Bill Ford, who had not only the president of Ford, he has been at the negotiating table for every union negotiation since 1982, the year I was born, long time ago. Uh, and what he said um, about politicians was striking. Tell us. Well, I mean, it's one thing for automakers to welcome politicians from both parties, not outside negotiations. But this has just been, this is a really rough negotiation cycle. And I think politicians coming in from both sides of the aisle, it's not helpful. Uh, that's basically what they're saying. Things are very difficult behind the scenes. So making things more difficult in front of the camera is, is just not helping the process at all. And that's very unlike him. He generally doesn't right. step up. This is, yeah, very unlike he him. He never does. Part of the quote. He says, I'm very grateful to our employees for everything they've done and continue to do for our company. What does anger me is the behavior of the politicians. Honestly, it's a circus we don't need because it doesn't help our employees. It doesn't help our company. Yeah. It, it is striking, uh, and it's now out there in the public. Is the thought that this will help the negotiations? Well, I think that right now things are, you know, we hear things are moving forward, then they slide backward. And remember, I mean, this is... Detroit, and this is all over the country, but in Silicon, you know, I recently moved back from California and in Silicon Valley, people were, you know, earning great jobs in tech and they were living in their vans and driving two hours so they could afford housing. Here in the Midwest and other parts of the country, the UAW is saying that's what we're fighting against. And so while we're expecting an announcement at noon today, uh, I think it may be different than the past two weeks because also the UAW has just announced that there's a solidarity convoy at noon. They're asking people who have vehicles that are currently out of production, the Bronco, the Jeep, the Chevy, uh, uh, oh, and the vehicles Cruise. built in Wentzville. Yeah. Oh, no, it's... Um, 
Chevy Colorado and okay. Canyon. Forgive me. Okay. Uh, and those are the vehicles that are going to meet and do the convoy. So that tells you he normally does an event that calls for striking at noon, but this is a different thing at noon today. So we're expecting something unexpected. We don't know what to expect. I feel like that's such a great kind of window into the Fane era and how this is just a different moment than we're used to in these types of negotiations. Is there any sense that the rank and file has any issues, concerns, problems with the leadership, which has been a very different strategy than we've seen before? Or is everything still rock solid for Fane and his team? Base, so what I do is I walk the strike lines and right. I walk all different strike lines, talk to the workers. Um, I have to tell you, they are standing solid with man. He's a brand new leader, elected in March and uh, very aggressive. But again and again, they say that they believe in the strategy. They believe he's watching their back. Um, what's interesting is how much they talk about loving these companies. I mean, they actually use the word love. And when I say, how can you love a company and be striking? I mean, you're shutting things down. The union workers say just now is the time. Now is our time. Just try to, to you know, get things back that we've lost and, and make our way for the future. And Fane's ability to bridge that gap between leadership and still loving the company, uh, it's been it's his superpower to some degree. And what you're saying from what you're hearing on the actual picket line, that's so critically important uh, in terms of where things are. Phoebe Wallhauer, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, that was Thank you. Fascinating. We'll watch what happens at noon, especially today. All right. Developing now, though, disturbing claims of racism against Tesla. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has filed a lawsuit. They filed it overnight. It alleges the electric automaker allowed repeated and overt displays of racism toward black employees at its plant in Fremont, California. The suit claims racist slurs were often used by non-black employees when speaking to black employees at the factory. This is not the first time these kind of allegations have been made against that same Tesla facility. Now, earlier this year, Tesla was ordered to pay $3 million after a civil suit by a black elevator operator at the at the plant claimed he was subjected to frequent racist abuse. CNN spoke with him back when he filed the suit last year. Even, you know, my experience, I want to say, let, let it be less about my experience and let it be more about the workers that's going through what they're going through right now. You know, because it's like my experience is over with. I was able to move on, but we still have workers that's there. You know, I've been saying and I'm going to keep saying, you know what, I'm not the only one that said anything. This most recent lawsuit makes no specific monetary demands, but asks that a jury make Tesla pay the alleged victims for the conduct they were subjected to and other damages. Tesla has not responded to CNN emails asking for a response. We'll keep you posted on where that goes. Less than 42 hours until the government shuts down and a new warning this morning about the impact of a shutdown on the U.S. credit rating. And by the way, could this push us into a recession? All of that straight ahead. New this morning, the White House warning that a government shutdown, quote, would deny more than $100 million in critical financing to American small businesses every day. That's because the Small Business Administration would stop processing those new business loans and a shutdown, which now seems all but certain, sadly, comes as the U.S. economy faces other challenges. Big headwinds. The auto workers ongoing strike, rising oil prices. By the way, you have to start paying your student loans again on October 1st and the child care cliff that we've been talking about all week. This week, Moody's Investor Services raised the possibility of a shutdown also, if there wasn't enough, hurting our credit rating. So how much chaos in Washington 
would damage the economy. With us now is the chief economist at Moody's, Mark Zandi. Morning, Mark. Good to see you. Um, you put morning, out Poppy. you put out this warning, you know, about sort of a credit watch negative. If that actually happens, coupled with all the rest of this, can you just explain what this shutdown is going to feel like for every American? Well, uh, Poppy, uh, I mean, initially, uh, it's not a big deal. I mean, we've been through many shutdowns, uh, 22 in all. 11 of those had uh, government furloughs. So, you know, if it's a few days, if it's a week or two, you know, obviously, it's a, it's a problem for those federal employees that are furloughed, uh, but it's not a big deal for the rest of us. If it extends on much beyond that, you know, let's say it goes a, a month, which was the length of the shutdown back in 2018-19, then things start to happen, uh, you know, it affects uh, if I'm a home a potential home buyer and I, and I want to get I need flood insurance from the federal government. I can't get that and I can't close on my home. The FDA can't uh, do uh, inspections of, of food processing plants or uh, pharmaceutical facilities. And, you know, that uh, disrupts the, the, the food supply. Uh, Environmental Protection Agency, you mentioned the Small Business Administration. Mm-hmm. And then you know, ultimately, uh, some of these fur- furloughed employees uh, and, and essential workers that go to work will stop going to work because they, they need to make a, make a living. They've got bills to pay. And that's like TSA agents or air traffic control. So, you know, with each passing day, this becomes more disruptive mm-hmm. and, and more of a deal, more of a problem for the economy. Mark, it's an interesting point because, you know, as Poppy laid out, there's so many different factors and you've gone into detail on all of them um, and, and how you've kind of watched this play out and your projections one thing I'm trying to figure out from a bigger picture perspective, as these headwinds exist or threats exist as well, you know, U.S. mortgage rates surging to their highest level in 23 years. You said that buying a home or car is almost completely unaffordable for a typical American right now. The U.S. economy has beaten expectations every step of the way in the recovery from the pandemic. Why are we here right now for consumers? Well, you know, you make a great point. I mean, the economy is amazingly resilient. Uh, lots of slings and arrows, but here yet we are with a four, a 3.8% unemployment rate. Lots of jobs, uh, you know, at this uh, at this point in time, wage growth is stronger than the rate of inflation. So, you know, we're kind of managing through. But, you know, uh, these headwinds keep popping up. Uh, the UAW strike is, you know, that's an issue uh, with each passing day. The, the mortgage rates at 7.5%, that's an issue. The oil price is now above $90 a barrel. We're paying, you know, more than $4 for a gallon of regular unleaded, and that starts to bite. And then, of course, you mentioned the student loan payment. So, you know, there's just a lot of stuff, you know, happening. Uh, uh, yet, through it all, the economy remains resilient. But having said that, you know, we, we shouldn't do things that we can uh, that uh, would harm the economy that we, we don't need to, like shutting the government down. I mean, that may not be a big deal if it's a couple of three weeks, but it could be a big deal given all these other you know mm-hmm. issues that we're, we're struggling with, all these other headwinds. Mark, just in terms of advice for what people at home should do, this is what the president of the Minneapolis Fed, who has a vote, by the way, on interest rates, Neil Kashkari, told us this week. Don't take on more debt right now. You know, would be a big thing. Credit card interest rates have gone up quite a bit. And if you have bigger balances, then it's going to be more and more painful to service those debts. And to the extent possible, have longer term uh, bar. If you have loans, longer term home loans are better. You agree with all of that for people watching at home? Oh, sure. You know, I mean, interest rates are really high. You don't want to borrow money when interest rates are high, particularly on your credit card, because you're going to be paying over 20 percent. And that's that's a pretty tough financial uh, treadmill to get on. So, so just don't do that. 
Of course, the other thing is you you, know, you need to be a good shopper. I think you know. I think you know. Back before inflation took off a couple three years ago, we gotten out of the habit of shopping, being careful about it because there was no inflation. It wasn't really an issue. But now with inflation much higher, we just have to be much more judicious. And you know, businesses pay attention to that. If if people stop shopping because prices are too high, they stop raising prices. So I think it's really hmm. important that we become good consumers again. Well, it's interesting. Our behavior can affect. That's a great point, particularly coming out of the pandemic where people had a lot more in their savings. Um, The the, uh, behavioral impact of all of this is fascinating. Uh, Nobody covers it better than you, Mark Sandy, Chief Economist at Moody's. Thank you, as always. Sure thing. Now to this. A new brain implant is creating life-changing hope for people who suffer from paralysis by using artificial intelligence. If you are paralyzed with your hands and you can just open and close, it's a huge change. Suddenly you can eat, you are gaining independence. New technology that's creating life-changing hope for those who suffer from paralysis. A Swiss man who is paralyzed has now miraculously regained some movement using a brain implant that applies artificial intelligence to read his thoughts, ultimately stimulating the correct muscles to make his body move. Seen as Nick Watt takes a closer look at this incredible development. If you talk to people with paralysis, it's their number one priority. They want to restore hand and arm function even above, they prioritize that above the ability to stand and walk again. Here's how it works. An implant is placed on the brain above the motor cortex. AI in that implant deciphers intent to move arms, hands, fingers then relays that information wirelessly to another implant in the body, so bypassing the damaged spine. AI in that implant triggers the right muscles to actually make those movements. They call this thought-driven movement. Dr. Jocelyn Block performed the surgery. We remove a little bit of bone, we replace this piece of bone by this set of electrodes, and then we close the skin. This implant is going to work wirelessly and activate the spinal cord stimulation. Her partner, a neuroscientist, first had this sci-fi idea years ago, then waited for tech to catch up. If you are paralyzed with your hand and you can just open and close, it's a huge change. Suddenly you can eat you are gaining independence. The change in the activity of daily living is dramatic. This is why this new project is so exciting. We met Bloch and Gregoire Cortine in July to discuss their previous project, another world first, fitting a similar device to this man who lost the use of his legs after a bicycle accident. Now the, the implants are able to capture my, uh, my thoughts of walking and able to transfer to the, to the stimulator in my uh, lower back. But they say restoring arm and hand function is actually harder. It's more refined, especially if we want to extend the restoration of movement to the fingers and not just the arms. So help them grasp something or help them use individual digits. While it is still too early to provide full results, Onward told us, we are pleased to report that the technology works as expected and appears to successfully reanimate his paralyzed arms, hands and fingers. We'll learn a lot from that first person, then we'll expand to four or five people and then if that goes well, we'll conduct a global pivotal trial and hopefully get FDA approval and make it available. 
a lot of work still to do, no doubt. But with these trial surgeries, they have proved that this can be done, something that many people thought was impossible. Movement can be restored after a spinal cord injury, and so many people could benefit from that. One legal ethicist told me we have an ethical imperative to continue this research. Now, we looked into this and a whole lot more for an upcoming episode of CNN's The Whole Story that's airing next month. Phil, Poppy. I can't wait to watch that. It's great amazing to see the good side of AI, too. Yeah, exactly. Well, just hours to go before the government shuts down. We're going to speak to a House Republican who opposes the short-term funding bill, what he thinks about a potential move to oust the speaker. Also, a surprising decision by the former president's legal team that could pave the way for Trump to appear at a televised trial. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. The government is on the brink of shutting down. House Republicans are essentially at war with one another. It got just a little bit spicy. Troops will not get paid. Border agents, FBI agents, air traffic controllers. Does he turn to Democrats and try to cut a deal with the Senate? At the House Republicans' impeachment hearings against President Biden, one senior Republican aide calling it, quote, an unmitigated disaster. We are holding this sham hearing days before the government will shut down. Joe Biden abused his public office. They had no fact witnesses, no eyewitnesses. This is an embarrassment. That could spell the beginning of the end for Trump's business empire is starting on Monday. Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Ivanka Trump, and Michael Cohen among many of their witnesses. And the former president decides not to fight to make his Georgia trial a federal case. We'll be seeing those proceedings play out on camera. All right, good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. A critical day, not only in Washington, but for the nation this morning. Yeah, because we are headed toward a government shutdown, and there seems to be no way out of it. That's right. Because House Republicans don't have a plan at this point. That means it could be quite long if it happens. Good morning. It is Friday, the 29th of September. And as we just said, a government shutdown is imminent. Less than 41 hours left on the clock. Now, no final plan, but trying to secure a plan. Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to hold a last-ditch vote on a stopgap bill to keep the government funded temporarily, but it doesn't look like he has the votes in his own party. Certainly can't get it through the Senate or the White House. He's also facing a serious threat of losing his job. One hour from now, the House Rules Committee is set to meet to try and pave the way for a vote on that stopgap bill, even though at this point, they don't think they have the votes at all. Here is why shutdown matters for you. Nearly 4 million federal employees won't be paid. That includes more than a million active duty troops. Essential workers will keep working, but they won't be paid, while others will be furloughed. The White House is warning a shutdown could lead to huge travel delays and training for desperately needed air traffic controllers. That'll stop. The IRS will stop processing most tax refunds, and it will be a lot harder for you to get in touch with the agency if you need help with your taxes. Now, on top of all that, food stamps for millions of poor Americans could be in danger, along with housing assistance for the elderly, disabled, and other low-income tenants who rely on federal aid. The FDA could be forced to delay food safety inspections across the nation. 
If you're a college student, federal loans and financial aid programs, they could be disrupted. A majority of national parks are expected to close if the government shuts down. In previous shutdowns, Washington, D.C. literally became a mess. Back in 2018 and 19, we saw trash cans overflowing, garbage scattered across the National Mall by the U.S. Capitol and by iconic monuments as the shutdowns just dragged on. Needless to say, there is a lot happening, a lot riding on what Congress does today. Our Lauren Fox is there. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning, Poppy. Right now, House Republicans are trying to push forward with a plan to pass a short-term spending bill. This is a last-ditch effort by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But as you noted, the votes right now are not there. We know of at least eight hardline Republicans who have said there's no circumstance, no way in which they would vote for a short-term stopgap measure to keep the government funded while they negotiate a fuller spending package for one fiscal year. Right now, that means that Kevin McCarthy is going to go to the floor around 1130 this morning, try to get a procedural vote passed on this bill, and likely it will fail. In the past, procedural votes were no big deal. House Republicans or the majority would vote for them even if members had concerns about about the underlying bill. But as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's future is uncertain, hardliners have used those procedural votes as a way to show McCarthy that they are serious and frustrated with his leadership. Meanwhile, there are questions looming about whether McCarthy is going to be able to keep his job for very long. We know that Matt Gates, a hardline conservative, has been warning for weeks now that at any moment he could bring a motion to vacate, a vote to oust the Speaker from his position. Obviously, one of the key concerns Concerns. One of the key problems for hardliners who want to move forward with that is who would they have replacing McCarthy? No one, it seems, really wants that job. Poppy, Phil. And that's a problem, a big one. Lauren Fox, thanks very much. Well, millions of Americans are bracing for the impacts on food benefits, military and travel if the government shuts down at midnight. There are real consequences here, not just the politics. TSA workers are considered essential, so they must show up for the jobs. Well, getting paid, though, at busy airports across the country. CNN's Miguel Marquez is live for us at New York's LaGuardia Airport. Uh, Miguel, airport security does not shut down, even if and when the government does. So what are they doing to prepare? Uh, they are not spending lots. They are looking at their budgets and trying to figure out how they can live paycheck to paycheck. If today, today is payday for most federal government workers, and they're trying to figure out how, if this thing goes on for a long time, they're going to make it through. Can I get some apples? Yes. Veronica Stowe feeds two teenagers, a seven-year-old, her mother, herself, and her husband, six total, relying mostly on a once-a-month payment from the federal government's SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So you get SNAP benefits once a month. Does that, does that last you? Does that buy food for an entire month? Sometimes it does. Like right now, I have... $200 left. The month is almost gone. Her next SNAP payment scheduled for October 16th. The government has guaranteed it through the month in case of a shutdown. But after that, it's unclear. What are you doing different today in case the government shuts down? Well, I cut it back on how we eat, how much we eat. We buy the same amount of food, we cook it differently. Instead of fries, we stew it so we can use it as a soup or broth so it can last longer. You have to make cutbacks. Spaghetti. She's also stocking up at a Brooklyn food pantry. This place is critical because 
When I run out of food at home, what am I really, where am I going? The campaign against hunger saw food insecurity skyrocket during the pandemic, the current migration crisis adding even more pressure. We are feeding um, 12 to 14,000 families per week, and so that's equate to over 20 million meals. 20 million meals a year. During the last government shutdown, they quickly saw a new group of New Yorkers in need of food. All the government workers are going to come in. We had from the TSA, we had the hospitals. We had so many families that were in need of food in 2018, 2019, that it just broke the safety net. The shutdown in 2018 was also a drag on shops whose customers pay for food with government benefits. Nationwide, the cost of a lengthy shutdown, enormous. The 2018 shutdown disrupted $18 billion in federal spending. An estimated $3 billion was never recovered, denting the nation's GDP lower by 0.02%. The nation's airports and air travel vulnerable during a shutdown. The 2018 shutdown, 34 days, the longest ever. A fight over then-President Trump's border wall funding saw TSA agents, air traffic controllers, and many other federal employees working without pay till the dispute was resolved. Mentally, it can be very draining on any human being, not just officers or employees for the federal agency. To not know when you'll be able to feed your family or provide the next meal or be able to provide education and childcare for your children, if that is your situation, is very frustrating. Alexis Maddox, who works for the TSA and the union representing federal employees, says most government workers live paycheck to paycheck, paid every two weeks. The next payday, today, Friday, September 29th. When will that next check come? That uncertainty producing the most anxiety. We are bracing for the worst. We're telling officers to save a little extra money, uh, put some things to the side. If it's not a necessity, please don't, don't spend in excess what you don't need because we don't know. So since 1977, there's been 20 shutdowns or there's a stoppage of government funding. Most of those have been resolved within a week or less. But things are so divided in the, the nation's capital right now. People that we spoke to here don't think it will be resolved very quickly. They are hoping and praying that like they have to go to work. Sometimes they say they don't agree with what their boss asked them to do, but they get it done. They do their work. They're hoping Congress does the same. Phil. All right, Miguel Marquez, thank you very much. And joining us now is one of the Republicans who poses a short-term funding measure is Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee. Congressman, I appreciate your time this morning. I, I, I'll get into kind of the political dynamics and the chamber dynamics in a minute, but I want to start with that in terms of as you look at the path things seem to be headed on right now, how does the cost-benefit net out as worth it when you think about the impact that this will have on people outside of the Capitol building? Well, first, first of all, thanks for having me on. And it's, of course, it's, it's a terrible thing to have a shutdown. But I'll tell you what's worse is if our whole economic system collapses. We're, we're taking in about $5 trillion this year and we'll spend about $7 trillion. So uh, this economic model that we're in right now is just not sustainable. And I dare say that if the economic system completely shuts down, that it'll do more than, uh, it'll be a little more than discomfort, as you stated in the preamble there that um, payday for most government employees is today 
and some people are paid monthly and some people are paid every two weeks. So well, hopefully we'll have it, there. it will be uh, painless because hopefully we'll have it all resolved within a couple of weeks. You say a couple of weeks. You know, what, what do you think people should think as they watch this play out? Outside of Washington, I think we get very insular and myopic about covering things like this. But your constituents back home, what should they be thinking right now? Well, first of all, I don't think it'll take a couple weeks. Obviously, I've been very much a critic of our of our work ethic here in Washington, D.C. You know, we we start meetings around 1030 and take a couple hours for lunch and and kick off at about 430 and then tell, tell America we've been working hard when they've been working all day. And, and, it, and frankly, it disgusts me, but we're here and we need to work. So um, I, I think the folks back home understand the fact that we are, we're up here trying to do something. And, um, and the conservative folks that I'm one of and the people that I represent understand that we're keeping our word. We are going to make this country fiscally sound if we can and that's what this is all about you know we want to have single issue payment bills we want uh we don't like uh, um, the crs continuing resolutions because that's just a gimmick it's a 30-day cr and then they tell us leadership will tell us we need to pass another cr so we don't have to pass any more crs and that's like telling a a crackhead look i'm going to give you some more crack to get you off a crack but because this country is addicted basically to our great-grandchildren's money and this is the process, and that's why we're, we're going through this, so we won't have to go through this again. Uh, the, the, uh, connecting this to crackheads was a, a twist I didn't expect necessarily this morning to take, but the idea of, uh, I understand your point, I understand history uh, quite well in terms of these issues, but you guys have basically blocked individual spending bills repeatedly, you guys, I mean the House Republican Conference, repeatedly over the course of the last two and a half months. So if you're Kevin McCarthy, you're saying, I put up individual bills. You won't even let us get onto the bill, let alone get through no, the rule. No, they haven't. They haven't gone through it like, like we did in the past, like the way it's set up. It's set up right now, uh, or in the past, it's been in the last 30 years, we have not passed a budget. It's set up so we go through this process of a continued resolution, and then uh, we do a 30-day, and then we do another 30-day, and then guess what? We're backed up against Christmas, and everybody needs to get home. So they pass what's called an omnibus. And the omnibus is basically the Nancy Pelosi. You got to pass it to know what's in it. No, no 2, I, I understand. Pa- Two thousand pages, and then you read down to find out what's in your district, and then you stop reading, and then you vote for the nineteen hundred and fifty-five other pages. And that's right. why we're thirty-three. That's why we're trillions of dollars in debt. That's why we spend two trillion more dollars than we take in. It's not feasible, and that's what we want to stop. And that's what we did. I and understand if you your saw point. Last night, and I, the, I think the what amendments. I, What I would just say, sir, and I assure you, I I, uh, have covered very close to the appropriations process. I know everything that you're detailing right now. I think last night is a good example, though, right? The Homeland Bill goes down. You passed three of the four bills that were put up. If you guys are sinking your own appropriations bills. No, sir. Sorry, um, DHS passed. uh, Ag went down. It's been a a confusing couple of weeks. Sorry. Um, But if you're shooting down your own spending bills... DOD has gone down a couple of times uh, over the course of the last several weeks. My point is, is how do you you ever reconcile if you can't get your own bills through? I think that's what McCarthy has been saying. Well, my own bills. Who are my own bills? You know, you're talking about a defense bill. You're talking about a Pentagon that has never passed, never passed an audit. You understand that process, obviously. It's um, they spend trillions of dollars. They lose billions of dollars. 
And, and yet there, this year that we, we, we put 30 billion more dollars into our Pentagon. Now, all I'm saying is let's and that's all the, the conservative folks are saying. Let's go back to pre-COVID spending levels. If we just went back to pre-COVID spending levels, and I dare say you or anybody else at the station could name one government program that's been added since COVID that we that you can't live without. Yet here we are. If we just go back to those pre pre-spending levels, then then we'd be okay. Then we could balance our budget. Jody Arrington out of Texas. You really ought to get him on and talk to him. He he is the chairman of the budget committee, and we actually have a budget now. He was given his ten minutes in conference, and they gave him the little golf clap, and everybody patted him on the head. But we actually have a budget. If if leadership would take it up, because that is what we are constitutionally, and that is what we're really mandated to do. One thing in Congress is to pass a budget, and yet we haven't done it in the last thirty years. Uh, sir, I do. Uh, before I let you go, you are on the House Oversight Committee. I think there's a lot of frustration uh, inside some Republican circles, including Republican leadership last night, with how the first hearing of the impeachment inquiry went. You've been on the record saying that you thought this was very clear in terms of the case up to this point before yesterday. After yesterday, do you still feel the same? Yeah, what we have to do, like my friend Ken Buck says, who was a former prosecutor, though, we have to tie it to when he was president. All the crooked dealings, $20 million, unpaid taxes, all the stuff that's swept under the rug by the Justice Department, that doesn't really matter, apparently. What we have to do is tie it to his current presidency and, and the uh, $250,000 wire from Communist China to the president's residence, that was after he had announced that he was running for president. So there is a direct tie. And you have to ask yourself, honestly, $20 million of, of money flowed through that family. They, they created 20 different LLCs just to launder the money. There's no, they didn't produce anything. And you have to ask yourself, why are they not paying taxes? If you and I sell $600 worth of stuff on eBay, we get a letter from the IRS demanding that we pay that. Can I just yeah, ask you, though, because Congressman Buck, sure. as you noted, a former uh, uh, prosecutor, has said that the evidence has not shown that you guys have met the threshold. He's not seen direct connections to the president. You're citing him that's here. Correct. That's correct. And none of the yeah, stuff you're laying out has not. necessarily directly connected to the president. Well, it's directed to the president and the fact that he says he had no contact with him, and yet the uh, the witnesses say he did. And then this last $250,000 wire went to his residence. I don't know, or it listed his residence and him as the recipient of it. I don't know how you, you say that's not evidence. So, And there's bank records and there's FBI informants that are not Republican or Democrat informants that have said what went on, and they were told to look the other way. So I think there's a lot of smoke there. And I think, and also, I think you have to realize, too, that Democrats are being openly against this president. They are looking for somewhere else, and I suspect they'll throw him under the bus a long time before we will. And I suspect you'll see the governor of California marched out as the Democrat nominee, in my opinion. Uh, it's, uh, you know, House Republicans weighing in on Democratic presidential strategy. It's an interesting uh, position there, well, <laughs> but, but I know I, that's where people are, Congressman. We got to go. Well, I, I appreciate it. Uh, that's why as I always, have Democrats sir. telling me that. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, sir. It was a really interesting, robust, important conversation, Phil. Thank you. Thanks to the congressman as well. Meantime, former President Trump's New York civil fraud trial. It's going to start Monday. They did not win an appeal to try to delay it. We'll tell you who could take the stand. That's next. For many migrants, the road to America is dangerous and starts much further away than Mexico. CNN joined two families who are risking it all for a chance at a better life. That's ahead. We're waiting for the two families that we met to make their way across. And they're about to board a raft 
and meet us in the middle as they cross illegally to Mexico. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Three days from now, the trial is set to begin in the $250 million New York civil fraud case against former President Trump and his adult sons after a state appellate court denied Trump's motion to stay the trial yesterday. Trump has been found liable for fraud and the Trump organization's business certification has been canceled. The judge says Trump inflated the values of his golf courses and hotels, as well as his homes at Mar-a-Lago and Seven Springs on financial statements. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is here with more. They wanted it stayed. They didn't want it to happen. They wanted it delayed. They're going to trial. What's going to happen? This thing is a go, Poppy. It's starting on Monday. So this case is a civil case, first of all, not a criminal case, brought by the New York State Attorney General Letitia James against Donald Trump, his adult children, and the businesses that they ran. Now, the Attorney General's core allegation here is that Trump and his businesses systematically and dramatically overinflated the value of their real estate holdings and their assets. Let me just give you one quick example. Mar-a-Lago, the actual buildings, the plant there, was assessed by the Palm Beach County Assessor, not some partisan interest, at being worth about $20 million. But Donald Trump, in his paperwork, claimed that Mar-a-Lago was worth $500 million. I did the math on that. That's a lot. Now, why would they do this? Because they would go then to banks, including Deutsche Bank and others, and they would use those inflated values to get higher loans than they might otherwise get at better interest rates. Now, important to know, the AG has already won an important piece of this case. Donald Trump has lost that piece of the case. The judge on this case, Judge Arthur Angeron, issued a ruling a couple days ago giving a judgment for the attorney general on one of the counts in the case for repetitive, persistent fraud. And in this, the judge said that Donald Trump's assessments were coming from a fantasy world, not the real world. So what's interesting is that Trump's legal team chose a bench trial, yes. not a jury trial. So it's this judge again who's going to make the ruling in after all the witnesses testify, which is just fascinating to me. Yeah. What kind of witnesses would take the stand? So we are getting a sense now we're seeing the party's witness list. First of all, those witness lists include Donald Trump himself, his adult children, Don Jr., Eric Trump, and Ivanka Trump. Now, interesting to note here, in a criminal case, prosecutors cannot subpoena. They cannot force the defendant to take the stand. That would violate the Fifth Amendment right. But in a civil case... The plaintiffs and the defendants can subpoena one another. If that happens, Trump and his children are going to have two choices. They can testify. That's risky, though. We saw Donald Trump's deposition in this case. It was a disaster. But they can also take the Fifth Amendment. Yeah. But in a civil case, Poppy, if any of them take the Fifth Amendment, the judge can consider, can consider that against them. So the defense here would be lack of intent, lack of knowledge? So a couple defenses I think we're going to see. First of all, Donald Trump has argued and will continue to argue these assessments of real estate value, there is some subjectivity. Sure. Reasonable minds can differ. But the judge has said, yeah, but not by 25 times. They're also going to argue, Trump's team, that they had these waivers, that what, what they call the worthless clause, saying, our numbers here, they're worthless. Don't mm-hmm. pay attention to them. But the judge has said that worthless clause itself is worthless. And then finally, Trump's team is going to argue, there's no victim here. There's no loss. The because they repay the loans. They got paid back with interest. That actually does not matter right. for the count that the AG's already won, but it will matter for the other counts. I, I just want to turn the page, if we could, Ellie, with the time we've left to Georgia. Yeah. This was fascinating. You're on the air as this broke yesterday. Yeah. They're not trying to move this you know, RICO case to federal court for Trump. Why? I admit to being stunned by this one. We saw Mark Meadows try to make this move unsuccessfully. The federal judge rejected it. Jeffrey Clark's in the process 
of making that argument. He could lose at any moment. I think he will lose. But Donald Trump's team said, no, we're actually going to stay in state court. I think there's two strategic reasons that could be driving this. One, the state judge has been right down the middle. He's given some rulings that I think Trump likes. I think they want to stay with him. Second of all, that state trial is very far off. They're going to get to see the early trial first. I think they like the timing, the procedural posture they're in. I think they're worried that if they got moved to federal court, they could be put on a fast They get track. to see the approach of the prosecutors in yeah. these cases that go before them. And yeah. then we could see it all on TV if it stays in state court. Exactly. All right. Quite a twist. Ellie, thank you. Thanks, Appreciate Bob. it, Phil. So how will the government shutdown impact the crisis at the border? Our David Culver is in Mexico on the ground with the people risking their lives to make it here to the U.S. David? And Phil, really understanding this migrant crisis impacting the U.S. requires you to see what's happening much farther south of the U.S. border. Here we are in southern Mexico. For that reason, you can see hundreds of migrants gathering. They're seeing record highs at the Mexico-Guatemala border. Just ahead, I'm going to bring you along for a unique sampling of what it takes for these migrants to get here. As we continue to wait for a looming shutdown, we're digging into what it means for all sorts of elements around the country. Right now, we want to dig into the nation's border crisis. Border Patrol agents are considered essential federal workers and must continue to work, but without pay. The shutdown could harm other operations. In previous shutdowns, like the one in 2019, the Homeland Security Department was forced to delay maintenance of facilities. According to a congressional report, this, quote, endangered the lives of law enforcement officers and created significant border security vulnerabilities. Despite all these issues, migrants are still arriving every single day, hoping for a better life in the U.S. CNN's David Culver joins us live from Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. Uh, David, you've been doing, I think, such revealing to some degree reporting, given the political conversation uh, that we tend to have on these issues. Since you've been on the ground there, you also went on a journey with some of these migrants. Tell us what you found, what you saw. And Phil, it was really just a day in the life of these migrants and, and their journey starts for many of them hundreds if not thousands of miles from where we are here in southern Mexico. But yeah, it's important to get a better perspective when you're outside of the U.S. and you're away from the U.S. southern border and you're in places like where we are right now in southern Mexico where they're seeing record highs of migrants coming in. But to better understand their level of determination and willingness to overcome all these obstacles, well, you got to go along with them. They stick together throughout. No one left behind. From falls to steep climbs. There's a lot of young children, so some of them are just basically being carried up. To dead ends. They started to go the wrong way for the moment, and now they're backtracking a little bit. Setback after setback. He's saying that they paid, were promised another pickup on the other side, but it seems like that driver just took off with their money. This, just part of a day's journey for these migrants, a day that started not here in southern Mexico, but across the Suchiate River in Guatemala. Hola, muy buenas. With passport stamped, we take the official land crossing, stepping into a vibrant Tecunamán. In the shade of the town square, we meet two families from Venezuela, traveling as one. They're saying they're ready to cross. They welcome us to join. Tienes siete años, no? Siete, seven years old. A 15-minute stroll to the river after 18 grueling days on the road. Jemile Rodriguez tells me it's been costly. 
She says, like, the, the going through the jungle is like dealing with the mafia. She says, you have to pay in order to leave, and they had to pay $250 a person. As they arrive at the river, another expense, the crossing. Meanwhile, we go back to the Mexico side using the official entry and hop onto a raft. We're waiting for the two families that we met to make their way across, and they're about to board a raft and meet us in the middle as they cross illegally to Mexico. Their raft drifts over the border, and we meet again in Mexico. He's saying they're headed to the land of opportunity. Migrant children scramble to help tug them to shore. They step off and into Ciudad Hidalgo, a small border town. It allows for just a moment of joy, if only for the kids. Their goal tonight, Tapachula, to get Mexican transit documents. They learn it's not as close as they'd hoped, 20 miles, normally an hour's drive. But there's a catch. Is that your van? Yeah. Oh, okay. They're getting on right now. Because they never entered Mexico legally, they need to avoid the multiple migration checkpoints. Otherwise, the Mexican drivers could be accused of smuggling. Every crevice of the van filled. Then they're off, on the road for only about 10 minutes. We watch as they pull over just before the first checkpoint. Everyone out. They walk the direction they think they're supposed to head. You can tell they're basically just trying to figure out their way as they go. They have no real guide. They were told some general instructions, and now they're just trying to figure it out. Weaving through brush and high grass, up and down hills, they skirt around the first migration checkpoint. But on the other side, the same driver who they paid to wait for them has taken off. So they're trying to figure out if they can get another van or they keep walking. Looks like for now they're just going to keep walking. A few minutes pass, another van pulls up. 15 minutes later, another stop, another checkpoint walk around. 30 minutes after that, yet another. This one takes them on a bridge directly over the migration checkpoint. Back on the van they go. Before sunset, they make it to Tapachula. Relieved? Sure. Also overwhelmed, thinking about the unknowns ahead, but determined to keep moving north, smiling and waving. We'll see you later, they tell us. I think one of the things that has stood out to us in the few days that we've been on the ground here in southern Mexico is how lax any enforcement really is. I mean, you've got migration checkpoints, but you don't have officials doing much more than uh, trying to basically stop migrants as they're coming right in front of them. If they're a few hundred feet away, they're not going to do anything. In fact, a lot of the crossings are happening right in front of officials. So it just shows you, Phil and Poppy, just how overwhelmed they are here when it comes to this migration crisis. It's a great point. This has also been extraordinarily important reporting over the course of the last several yeah. days. David Culver, appreciate it as always. Thank you. All right. To Washington, House Republicans held that first impeachment inquiry hearing into President Biden. It led to multiple blow-ups across party lines. We're going to be joined by someone who was in that room. House Republicans have issued three subpoenas for President Biden's son, Hunter, and the president's brother, James, dating back to January of 2014. This comes after the GOP held the first hearing in their impeachment inquiry into President Biden. So far, no direct evidence to show. For a moment, it wasn't actually a hearing. It was a shouting match. Chair recognizes Mr. Donald for five minutes. Order. You'll have five minutes. You'll have, have my five minutes. The point of no, order. you're out of order. You're out of order, Mr. Goldman. I have a when point you're, of order. When your time is... 
I will be to introduce something Chair recognizes by Mr. Donalds for five minutes. Is it being introduced? Chair recognizes Mr. Donalds for five minutes. Byron, it's Mr. your Chairman, time. The rules require you Thank to you, recognize. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. No. Joining us now, one half of that exchange, Democratic Congressman from New York, Daniel Goldman. He was also a lead counsel in Donald Trump's first impeachment. Congressman, appreciate your time this morning. I want to start with what we saw yesterday in terms of in talking to Republican aides last night who were very frustrated uh, by their side of the dais. One of the things they kept saying was that they felt you guys were very organized. You guys were very prepared. Can you take us behind the scenes in terms of what you guys did in terms of Democrats on the panel leading up to that? Yeah, it was a combination of things. Uh, Ranking member Raskin is just such a great leader uh, for all of us, and he and the staff had everybody really well prepared. Um, But we also knew exactly what our objective was. And when the facts are on your side, and in this case, it's the lack of facts, it's a lot easier. Uh, When you have to manufacture a whole theory of a case uh, based on allegations that don't have any support, it's a lot harder to do. And I think, uh, you know, investigations don't just fall off trees. They require work. They require thought. They require strategy. And mostly they require evidence. And in this case, the Republicans do not have any evidence, which is part of why we didn't have any fact witnesses there yesterday. And it's bewildering to me that uh, Chairman Comer doesn't just wouldn't allow me to put in some evidence there. That's all I was trying to do, which is normally just pro forma. Um, But it's a reflection, I think, of uh, where we are right now, both in this committee and in this investigation. And it's a reflection of the fact that we have a bogus sham impeachment inquiry uh, that has no basis, that is a partisan political stunt done at the behest and direction for Donald Trump for his own personal benefit, and the facts just aren't there. And it's one thing for Donald Trump to get up and lie over and over and over. Uh, He's a professional at doing that, but it's a lot harder for rank-and-file members of the House of Representatives to do it, and that's what they're left with doing. We want to get to one um, allegation that was new that Comer made yesterday, but before we do, what were you trying to read into the record there when you were shot down by the chair? I was simply trying to uh, read into the record an excerpt of a transcript from Devin Archer, where the witness himself said that uh, Hunter Biden was trying to provide his own business associates with the illusion of access to uh, President Biden. Okay. Uh, the reality, of course, is that that, even if, if that is the case, it's insufficient to be a crime. It's insufficient to be a high crime. Uh, Hunter Biden may have done shady business behind the scenes, but there's no evidence that Joe here, Biden was involved at all. Here is what the chair, Chair Comer, pointed to as what, what they are calling um, evidence yesterday. Let's play that. It has to do with wire transfers from China. Just this week. We uncovered two additional wires sent to Hunter Biden that originated in Beijing from Chinese nationals. This happened when Joe Biden was running for president of the United States, and Joe Biden's home is listed as the beneficiary address. Important pieces of context missing there. One, that that does not include any evidence that Joe Biden received any of the money. And two, that Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's attorney, says, look, That address, his father's address, was the only permanent address he had because he was living there for some of the time. However, do you think there are questions regarding that that should be answered for transparency for the American people? No, I I think that's that in particular is a is a great example 
of the desperation that the Republicans have to link Joe Biden to Hunter Biden's activities. Um, the fact that Hunter Biden used his father's address as his own permanent address as he was getting divorced, uh, I think moving out of his own home in, in a bad state of affairs and had it on his driver's license, had it on many other accounts, it shows nothing, nothing at all about Joe Biden's involvement. And it's just another effort to gaslight the American public into thinking that Joe Biden had something to do with Hunter Biden's business interests. There's no evidence Joe Biden was involved whatsoever in that, that he knew about it, that he received anything of it. The fact of his address being used is not evidence of anything. And it's just another example of them misusing information and trying to to turn it into something that it's not. Another example is all these emails and texts that we that they show from 2017, which don't indicate any involvement of Joe Biden. Um, but it's also when Joe Biden was not a president or vice president or a Department of Justice email from 2020. That was the Trump Justice Department. Mm -hmm. So it, all of these allegations just don't make any sense. The timeline makes no sense. Uh, and just the facts make no sense. And I think what, what really came out yesterday when uh, the rubber had to meet the road, when the facts and the evidence were needed, is it's just not there. And I'm very proud of the Democrats that we have on that committee because we made that very clear over and over. And especially how preposterous it is as they are barreling us to headlong into a shutdown that is of their own making by themselves. Wish we had a little bit more time, Congressman Goldman. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. Well, former President Jimmy Carter will turn 99 this weekend, adding to his record of oldest living president. We'll be joined by the CEO of the Carter Foundation to discuss this incredible milestone. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Former President Jimmy Carter will celebrate his 99th birthday this Sunday, October 1st. But the Carter Center has moved celebrations up to tomorrow due to a looming government shutdown that could force several museums and national parks to close. Thousands of people from around the world have sent President Carter well wishes for, his, for, for this, look at that, birthday mosaic that will just be displayed across Atlanta. The Carter Center is set to honor his 99th birthday with the naturalization swearing-in ceremony for 99 new American citizens. Well, Carter and his wife, Rosalind, made their first public appearance in more than seven months last weekend when they took a ride through the Plains Peanut Festival in their hometown of Plains, Georgia. President Carter entered hospice care in February. Joining us now is Paige Alexander, the CEO of the Carter Center. Um, thank you so much for being here. I think what's so remarkable is when I talk to people in and around kind of the orbit, they feel like the last seven months has almost been a bonus, right? Even his son said when they entered hospice care, they had no idea what was going to happen next, didn't have, uh, were obviously very concerned. And yet here he is, he's made a public appearance, it's his 99th birthday. Uh, describe kind of what surrounds him right now. Uh, he's surrounded by family and love and well wishes from people. I think the constant review of his presidency and his post-presidency really gives him a lot of energy. And, uh, you know, he, he always surprises us. So we're not terribly surprised it's been seven months, but it, he's surrounded by love and that's what counts. You know, many of his recent warnings about the fragility of our democracy really ring true, especially on a day like today, right before a government shutdown. We'll never forget what he wrote in the New York Times one year after 
the insurrection at the Capitol. And part of what he said is Americans must set aside differences and work together before it is too late. He still has hope, doesn't he? He does. I mean, he spent 40 years forming the Carter Center with his wife, Rosalyn, and the fact that he believed that we needed to represent globally as well as locally what democracy stood for. And uh, just just this month, 13 presidential centers signed on to a statement about civility and political discourse and the importance of having those conversations. So historically, that's where the U.S. has been, and we hope to get back. I actually wanted to ask you about that letter because I thought it was extraordinary when it came out. The third, I think it was everybody but Eisenhower, and Eisenhower's folks said that they just hadn't been consulted on it. But 13 presidential libraries saying, in part, Americans have a strong interest in supporting democratic movements and respect for human rights around the world because free societies elsewhere contribute to our own security and prosperity. That interest is undermined when others see our house in disarray. Um, it was said that this wasn't explicit about any one person, any one party, any group of people. But is being implicit about the intentions in any way problematic? No, I mean, you know, the Carter Center has signed candidate principles. We've worked in 115 elections in 40 different countries, and we always have a code of conduct. And we are now starting to work in the United States, and we have the candidate principles that call for civility. This was led by the Bush Center, W, and all 13 presidential centers that signed on to it. It's just the reality that we want to see our country get back to that place. He's one of the presidents who not only will be remembered for what he did in office, but for all that he and Rosalind have done since leaving office. What do you believe his legacy is? As he, we are lucky enough, Phil said, to still have them. Right. Uh, you know, I think his legacy is hope. I mean, his legacy is the concept that we are better when we're working together. And I think that the polarization that we have seen, whether it's political polarization or whether what we see in Mali and Sudan, is the same that we see in Central Florida and Arizona now. And so being able to bring people to the table and have those conversations is what he did as president and what he wants to do uh, and will continue to do in the legacy that the Carter Center will continue. It's not often that post-presidency, your legacy is as expansive uh, and important and seemingly bipartisan in terms of how people view it uh, as President Carter. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Enjoy the celebration. Oh, we will. We will. A Michigan police officer is being hailed as a hero after saving the life of a three-year-old boy who was choking our bridging grass reports. It's not often a police officer fresh from the academy. I'd like to present this life-saving award to Officer Mohammed Hatcham for a job well done. Is recognized as a hero. I think everything was at the right place at the right time. Such is the case for Melvindale, Michigan police officer Muhammad Hashem. You got home from work after doing the night shift, right? I got home from work. I was setting up my gear on my duty belt and I left the radio right here and it went off. We're having a report of a three-year-old not breathing. After I heard that, I was like, okay, you know, there's yelling. Kendall and Gould is like, like 30 seconds from where I live. And that's when you see Officer Hashem on surveillance video sprinting to the emergency. The three-year-old male is possibly choking. What did he look like? Uh, when I got him, his eyes were rolled back. His face was like, you know, bluish. I thought, you know, I'm like actually something, you know, has a little response or anything, but it was nothing at all. No response. Nothing at all. In my head, when I held the baby, I was like, 
Okay, I know what to do. Hashem zeroed in on the life-saving training he received just a few months before in the academy. Turned the baby over, uh, gave the baby uh, back compressions one time, two times, three times. Did just almost, by hitting the baby? Yeah, I did it like six times. And nothing, none of those times were in my head was like, give up. I was like, I'm not going to give up. Finally, the little boy coughed up food. He's breathing, he's conscious. Hashem saving his life. <laughs> the boy's dad, grateful. I'm happy my, uh, my kid is good. What does it say to have someone who's a cop that, that will go out of his way when he's off duty, will take the initiative? I, I think it's phenomenal. I mean, that's the philosophy that we need to have nowadays. Because you're building trust. You're, you're, you're building that relationship to where we're not just a machine in uniform, we're actually a human in this uniform. I think we're all heroes. I honestly do, because I honestly think, you know, everybody does something in life. Everybody can make a change in someone's life. Bringing Grass, CNN, Melvindale, Michigan. Love that, Bryn, thank you. All right, we're just around 40 hours away from a government shutdown. What does it mean for you? That's ahead. And do you have any weekend plans? It looks like Taylor Swift does. <laughs> it's Poppy's favorite story. The Megastar reportedly heading to MetLife Stadium on Sunday to watch Travis Kelsey and the Chiefs take on the really bad at football Jets. Oh, we'll have more. man. It's a fact. You're going to make this team We have a five-seat majority, so it's not one side's going to get more than another. It's the entire conference is going to have to learn how to work together. So it's better that we go through this process right now so we can achieve the things we want to achieve for the American public, what our commitment was. So if this takes a little longer and it doesn't meet your deadline, that's okay, because it's not, it, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And if we finish well, we'll be very successful. That was Speaker Kevin McCarthy back in January trying to make the case as he worked to become Speaker of the House that even with the slim majority, his majority would come together, learn from that moment, and be able to succeed. At the moment, the United States federal government is on the brink of a government shutdown with less than 40 hours left on the clock. And right now, Speaker McCarthy is throwing a last-ditch Hail Mary as he struggles to overcome a rebellion in the, in the House GOP. As we speak, the House Rules Committee set to meet try to clear the way for a vote later today on a stopgap bill. That bill would keep the government funded temporarily for 30 days, but at this point, despite conservative additions into the legislation, McCarthy doesn't appear to have enough Republican votes to pass it. And he's refusing to say if he'll cut a deal with Democrats if it fails. Have you actually gamed out a plan B if this falls apart yeah, tomorrow? Why do I tell you? I mean, so, I mean, who... who what do you mean? I, in this job, you got to have A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. Okay, so... What letter are you on now? <laughs> Again, that was McCarthy back in January. The question this that morning... Oh, that was yesterday. Here's why a shutdown matters. For you, more than 2 million federal workers will stop being paid. More than 1 million active-duty troops will also stop receiving paychecks. The White House is warning that we could see huge travel delays and training for desperately needed air traffic controllers. As for the IRS, they'll stop processing most tax refunds. It will be a lot harder for you to get in touch with the agency. Now, it's worth noting, Manu is walking and talking with Kevin McCarthy so often over the course <laughs> of the last nine months dealing with these issues that uh, there is no shortage of sound, but there are also no shortage of issues and potential impacts here. Food stamps and housing assistance for millions of poor, disabled, and elderly Americans who rely on federal help could be in danger. The FDA could be forced to delay food safety inspections across the nation. 
federal student loans and financial aid programs could be disrupted. And a majority of national parks are expected to close down. Needless to say, a lot happening on the Hill. Lauren Fox is tracking all of it. How is this Hail Mary going to play out today? Well, 40 hours until a government shutdown, and that is time for things to play out. But to this point, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has used every opportunity that he could to cajole, to try and get his conservatives to rally around a short-term spending bill, trying at times to pressure them to try to make this about the border. He has tried everything he can, and yet going into this vote today, he is still short of the members he needs to pass this on the House floor. That means it's very likely that that House Republicans could go into the weekend without their own plan to avert a government shutdown. Last night, they voted out a series of appropriations bills. They passed three. One of them failed with major Republican defections. None of those bills, though, would stop a government shutdown, which is why there is now a lot of focus on what will happen in the United States Senate. They are working on a bipartisan basis in that chamber, but they may not have time to pass their own government funding bill before time runs out because of opposition and slow walking from Senator Rand Paul over his concerns about the fact Ukraine aid is in that bill. So both chambers struggling right now, but House Republicans struggling even more as they don't have their own plan to avert a shutdown. This is something that McCarthy for months has been warning his conference would be a death knell to the Republican majority, arguing it could really hurt them in 2024 if they are the ones who are blamed for this shutdown. Poppy, Phil. Lauren Fox, thank you. As always, we'll keep checking with you as the day progresses. Phil. So McCarthy's warnings that Lauren was just laying out are really important because the question is, how did we get here? And it, the answer is, it didn't just happen overnight. It wasn't because of the last couple of weeks. In fact, you have to track back to January, where this all started, where Speaker McC Kevin McCarthy was just desperately trying to become Speaker of the House. The Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the state of California has received 203. 203, 202, 201, 201, 201, 201, 201, 200, 200, 200, 213, 214, 216. Having received a majority of the votes cast, is duly elected Speaker of the House of Representatives. Now, to be clear, there's no point in replaying that to try and take a shot at the Speaker of the House. What it really demonstrates is kind of the work that McCarthy has had to do, not just from day one, but also throughout the course of these nine months with his very slim majority, a very slim majority where conservative hardliners don't just have pull, have juice inside that majority, but they're utilizing it, which has created serious problems. That was the longest speaker contest in 164 years. And if you want to understand how you got from there to here, it's worth noting that that's the place you have to start. Of course, McCarthy became Speaker of the House. There he is with the gavel right there. But the process to getting there included a number of concessions to those conservative hardliners to get over the top with that 15th vote, including that one member can call for a motion to oust the Speaker. Any debt ceiling increase would have to be paired with spending cuts, moving all of the 12 of the appropriations bills individually. Freedom Caucus has more representation on committees and cap discretionary spending at fiscal 2022 levels. Every element of that is playing a role in where we are right now. Most importantly, though, that started things. The debt ceiling deal that happened back in May really accelerated where we are now. Now, if you look at that deal, it was a major bipartisan victory for McCarthy. There were real potential dangers to the country if the U.S. defaulted on its debt. 
He struck a deal with President Biden, two-year spending caps, rescind COVID relief funds, rescind new IRS funding. These are critical things that McCarthy called historic. Republicans had pushed for. Republican moderates certainly got behind and wanted. But within days, the backlash from conservatives, mainly because they set a spending level that was supposed to make a government shutdown less likely, was fierce. In fact, you saw it repeatedly over and over again. Polling spending bills, failing on procedural motions, failing again on procedural motions, failing again on procedural motions. That is what's driven to this, trying to find some pathway forward, not just on individual spending bills, but on a stopgap spending bill that at this point in time, McCarthy clearly heading into this day does not have enough Republican support to pass on its own. And here's how everything connects together. If you look at where our Capitol Hill team, which has done great reporting on this, has the hard no votes right now as they enter this day, something is worth noting for all of them. Matt Gates, Matt Rosendale, Eli Crane, uh, and if you want to go over here, Lauren Boebert as well. Why am I circling all of them? All of them refused to vote for McCarthy, not just for the first 14 votes for Speaker. They also all voted present on the 15th vote. That just underscored what was going to happen nine months later. Poppy? Well, thank you. Joining us now, Republican Congressman from New York, Mike Lawler, Congressman so appreciate you being with us on a day like today. I just want to step back for a moment and let you and everyone listen to real folks from across the country. This is 2019 as the shutdown was going on and on. Here's how it impacted them. I have enough for one more mortgage payment and I got to go to CarMax tomorrow and sell my car. When we hear things like this shutdown could go on for months or years, we don't have months or years. We have creditors, we have medical bills, we have mortgages, we have rent. I don't think that we should be held captive, like our paycheck should be held captive, just because of something that they need to, like, brawl out. Can you guarantee to those people and your constituents again, Congressman, that won't happen to them this time? Look, I'm gonna do everything I can to ensure that it doesn't. Uh, I don't think there's any question. The only people who get hurt here are the American people. Uh, I respect some of the differences that some of my colleagues have uh, with respect to uh, spending, with respect to process. Uh, but in some cases, like with Matt Gates, it's a difference of personality. Uh, and he's made it very clear that his objective is to remove Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Uh, and so this has become uh, a situation where the American people uh, are going to be harmed because of one person, Matt Gates. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, I'm not going to uh, stand by and let that happen. Uh, we've tried to give the speaker as much runway as possible here mm -hmm. uh, to get a conservative CR onto the floor, uh, continuing resolution so that we can keep the government funded uh, and be in a position to negotiate with the Senate. Uh, if it fails today, uh, there are a number of us uh, that will move ahead uh, without them, because <clears throat> the bottom line is people, uh, people's lives, people's uh, economic livelihood uh, is at stake. The stock market, 401ks. It's totally unacceptable to be playing politics uh, as Matt Gates has been throughout this entire three-week period. Uh, and I'm not going to let it happen. Explain to the American people how you will do that, how you will move forward without them and what that will result in. Well, there's a number of, uh, of ways forward. Number one, uh, I and uh, 31 other Republicans are part of the problem solvers. We signed on to a bill uh, 
uh, that would be a bipartisan a stopgap measure uh, for uh, about three months to allow us to complete the appropriations process work. Uh, nobody in the Republican conference disagrees about the need to cut spending. Nobody in the conference disagrees about the need to do single subject appropriations bills. We all agreed to that. But the bottom line is it's going to take more than tomorrow's deadline of September 30th mm -hmm. uh, to pass these bills and get them signed into law. Do you? And so in the interim, in the interim, we need to keep the government funded and open. And so the bill that uh, the problem solvers put forward would deal with border security. It would deal with Ukraine. It would deal with disaster relief and it would keep the government funded. The Senate obviously is working on a bill right now uh, in a bipartisan way. Uh, we will see what they come back with. I do believe we need to deal with border security. Uh, this administration has failed miserably when it comes to border security. We're dealing with the consequences of that in my home state of New York. Uh, I saw Leader Jeffries on the floor yesterday and talked to him uh, and said, look, we need border security. Well, we'll see what the what the Senate Congressman, does. I'm going to get know, to that, immigration to in just on. I actually do want to ask you specifically about immigration in New York in just a minute. But just to stay on this topic for a moment, do you believe Speaker McCarthy should negotiate with Democrats to reach a deal? Are we at that point? Oh, listen, we're going to see what happens this morning. Uh, the Rules Committee is meeting right now uh, on a, a conservative CR to get through the House. If it fails, uh -huh. uh, look, we, ha we have an obligation to govern. OK. Uh, and so the bottom line is any final any final uh, continuing resolution is going to be bipartisan. It mm -hmm. has to be given the fact that we are a divided government, the yep. Senate is controlled by Democrats, and the president is a Democrat. Congressman, um, last yesterday there was the vote uh, on this ag bill, and you did not vote to pass it, despite consistently, you know, working as you said to avoid a shutdown, saying you know you've been supportive of McCarthy. Can you explain to people why you didn't support that? I believe it was because of one uh, provision in it having to do with mifepristone. Is that correct? That's correct. And I and I had stated that going back to July when this bill was first uh, under consideration. But the failure of the ag bill uh, yesterday has nothing to do with the shutdown. Uh, the shutdown uh, is a result of the fact that there's a September 30th deadline uh, for the fiscal year. Uh, and we are uh, not complete with all of our appropriations work. Even if that bill passed yesterday, that would have only been the fifth of 12 appropriations That's bills right. to pass the House. And by the way, I would remind you, the Senate has not passed one single appropriations bill to date. So there is, there is obviously a, a, a time frame here where Congress has not completed its work. And so the only way forward at the moment uh, to keep the government open and funded is to pass a continuing resolution. Right. Now, some of my colleagues object to that because they say, oh, this is the way Washington has been working for 30 years. Yes, and when you're trying to break the habit, uh, it does take time. Our appropriations committees have been going through line by line, uh, budget bill by budget bill, to come up with a better product. That takes time. And, and so there's no reason, in my opinion, to hold the American people hostage while going through this process. It's important work, but it takes time to do it. And I, I want to end on immigration, because it's critical, and we're all seeing what's happening here in New York and in the district that you represent. I will say that on the Senate side, they did successfully pass 12 budget bills out of appropriations in July, just not 
the full Senate. But well, moving yeah, up, can pop, I? Pop, <laughs> poppy, Poppy. We I won't have time to ask of, you we about. We passed ten of the twelve. Immigration. They passed twelve out of committee. They've passed yeah. nothing on the Senate floor. Uh, yes, clear that's clear. That. Yes, I just wanted to clarify. They got them out of the Appropriations Committee on immigration. We heard Governor Hochul of New York say yesterday what one more impact of a shutdown would be on work visas for migrants, especially from Venezuela, now that the Biden administration has given them this temporary protected status. Here's what the governor said. It's going to stop our ability to get people out of the shelters, which is exactly what President Biden was trying to do when he granted TPS temporary protective status for Venezuelans. I've said repeatedly the time for action is now. Do you support those temporary work permits for them? With all due respect to the governor, uh, her handling of this crisis has been a disaster. Uh, you have 85,000 people in the New York City shelter system. It was down to 50 prior to this crisis. Uh, so the 10,000 or so people who are going to get TPS status and work authorization, yes, it's important. Venezuela, obviously, uh, dealing with significant challenges. Most of the migrants coming uh, are coming from Venezuela. Uh, but this is a crisis across the country. This is not just about New York. You have six million migrants who have crossed our southern border since Joe Biden became president, many of them illegally. These asylum cases, when they are finally heard two to three years after the fact, 70 percent of them are being rejected. So we need to secure our border. We need to stop this massive influx. We need to deal with the asylum cases expeditiously mm -hmm. at the border, at the port uh, points of entry, at the countries of origin. Just giving work authorization is not solving the problem. Uh, Eric Adams has said that it's going to cost New York City $12 billion over three years and that it is destroying the city. Kathy Hochul just the other day said there's no more room at the inn. So this isn't a function of work authorization. This is a function of stopping the massive influx and ultimately reforming our immigration system. Democrats have job, refused a to job act. for Congress. Democrats have <laughs> refused to act. Hold on, Poppy. Democrats have refused to act in the House. They opposed H.R. 2 in the Senate. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority huh. Leader from New York, has refused to do anything on on border security. It's a disgrace. And he needs to take responsibility. And NECR should include provisions to secure our border. It's that simple. Congressman Lawler, we are we are not only out of time, over time, but you're always welcome back. We'll keep having these discussions. I thank you this morning. Thanks, Pop. Yep. Felt. President Biden issuing a blunt warning about the effect Donald Trump is having on democracy in America, how this message will be used in the 2024 campaign. And new this morning, more details have been revealed about the tragic death of that young tech CEO in Baltimore. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. movement does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. The MAGA movement. There's no question that today's Republican Party is driven and intimidated by MAGA Republican extremists. Trump says the Constitution gave him, quote, the right to do whatever he wants as president, end of quote. I've never heard a president say that in jest. That was President Biden yesterday issuing a stark warning about the existential threat he sees facing American democracy. His biggest concern he wasn't subtle about it. Former President Donald Trump, Biden laying out detailed concerns during a speech in Arizona, one of the states at the center of Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. The speech marked Biden's fourth and strongest attempt to call out the former president and current GOP frontrunner on his anti-democratic behavior. 
Biden's speech comes as new reporting from The New York Times shows the uphill battle facing anyone challenging Donald Trump, at least in the Republican primary. The Times obtaining a memo from a conservative anti-Trump political action committee showing more than 40 anti-Trump television ads failed to make a dent in Trump's support among Republican voters. And in some cases, it even helped the former president. Joining us now to discuss former New York Congressman Max Rose and CNN political commentator and former Trump White House communications director, uh, Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Um, I, I want to get to the Biden speech in a sec, but, but I want to start with this Club for Growth and uh, Jonathan Swan of The New York Times with the scoop on this. You know, to pull something that, uh, from the memos themselves, it says, quote, every traditional post-production ad attacking President Trump either backfired or produced no impact on his ballot support and favorability. This includes ads that primarily feature video of him saying liberal or stupid comments from his own mouth. The distinction here is this is for Republicans in a primary setting, and this tracks with where Republicans are based on polling. And Biden is going to be a general election candidate that he would have to face. Do you think that the same applies in a general election setting? No, but I'm not surprised that the Club for Growth ads did not break through. So the problem that I think Republican candidates running against Donald Trump and some of these outside groups have made is you're not going to beat him on kind of the minor policy issues. He didn't finish the wall. You know, he raised spending when he, he spent too much when he was in office. You need to litigate the case of his unfitness because voters who liked Trump are going to say, yeah, but I had more money in my 401k when he was president. Energy prices were lower. They can vote based on what they felt. So I don't know that I think that kind of thing breaks through. But a general election, Biden needed to be doing this six months ago, as far as I'm concerned, is litigating the case of this is an anti-democratic president. We all know what we saw on January 6th. He's an existential threat. I'm fine with a normal Republican, but this is not a normal Republican. That, I do think, breaks through with independent swing voters and moderates. The fact that they have spent $4 million so far on this, and this internal memo says nothing broke through. Your, sure. your voice is interesting on this because you represented a lot of Trump voters in your district. Well, certainly, what breaks through? Look, this is a cult of personality. And so the one point where I saw Trump voters really move away from Donald Trump, albeit momentarily, was the Lafayette Square. Mm -hmm. When they saw Donald Trump walk out and literally with inflict General violence, Milley. with General Milley, inflict violence Gaspar, on yeah. uh, peaceful American citizens. And because at that moment, what that was was an assault on their values that they hold and still hold so sacred. This is and will never be about policy. And anyone that tries to make it that way in a Republican primary or in a general election is really playing with fire. What I've been amazed by in this Republican primary is why they have not led with one word and one word only, which is loser. <laughs> Donald Trump lost in 2018, the House and the Senate very obviously lost in 2020. And then the Republicans had a subpar performance in 2022. It has been a string of losses. And that is a message that I'm no expert on Republican primary voters, but I think that that would resonate. Well, and I think that we've seen, too, there's kind of this, you know, reporting of this wish casting that suddenly Glenn Youngkin or someone else is going to get in. And that's going to be what finally breaks through. The Republicans are the candidates aren't losing to Trump in the primary for a lack of political talent. Nikki Haley is an excellent political candidate. It's because they've not litigated the true case against Donald Trump. Policy, to your point, will not break through. This is a cult of personality. People genuinely love and believe in the former president. I'd go further to say the electability issue, and he's a loser, is big, but it's not enough. It's we saw what happened on January 6th. We saw what happened at Lafayette Square. 
Do you want that chaos? Do you want to explain to your kids that the commander in chief is this person who said these detestable things? But no one wants to touch it because they're afraid of losing his supporters. And that's why combined all seven candidates on the debate stage last week still trail Donald Trump by 20 points. Why you got to puncture the dreams of donors <laughs> and their five-star hotel dinners and big plans and thoughts? Can I ask, the, like, to, to both of your points on this, what you're describing is kind of the theory of the case of Biden's campaign team, right? It was how they launched the campaign with the video that they had. It's obviously a driving force behind yesterday's speech, the fourth on this issue. And that's the contrast. Yes, on abortion policy. Yes, on several policy issues. But on the broader, bigger picture is the contrast which they believe will work. And yet, members of your party, a lot of them, are convinced that everything's going terribly wrong. How do you kind of navigate those two differences? Well, Democrats are bedwetters by their very nature. So let, let's not, I've, I've never seen a conversation with a series of Democratic leaders where they didn't think the world was about to end. But politically speaking, it's about discipline and repetition. And when we look at what the Biden campaign is doing now and will continue to do in the coming months, constantly speaking to what you talked about, our values, patriotism, our constitution, the fact that this ex-president is literally calling for the execution of our leading military official. There is no place for that in America. And it's no coincidence that Joe Biden is sending this message while also wrapping his arms around John McCain's legacy. It's not about Democrats versus Republicans. This is about pro-America versus those who don't believe in our shared values. Well, in oh, in, uh, Biden's strongest messages don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative, because the reality is his his favorability is tracking with Jimmy Carter's during the malaise era right now. Seventy three percent of Americans think he's too old to be president. But if he can just say this is a binary choice between me and Donald Trump, a historically unfit president, that's where his strength lies. What did you make of what Trump said to the Daily Caller about the debates being fruitless? He said, quote, the Republican debates, they have to stop the debates because it's just bad for the Republican Party. They're not going anywhere, meaning those candidates on stage. This is not going to there's not going to be a breakout candidate. He's saying that about them, but they won't break from him except for fully, except for Chris Christie. I mean, I don't know that I think he's wrong. Okay, he should debate. If you're running to get elected, you need to show up and debate with the voters, hands down. But I don't know that I think that after two debates that did anything to boost the party and our image and, Mm -hmm. you know, our policy viewpoints. It was a lot of arguing amongst ourselves and not dealing with the elephant that wasn't in the room of Donald Trump. Interesting. Okay, thank you. Have a good weekend, guys. You You too. Well, the outgoing chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Max, just referenced him, departing the Pentagon to a round of applause. Mm -hmm. General Mark Milley and his wife descending the stairs of the Pentagon in a tradition known as clap-out. Milley shook hands and shared hugs with colleagues, including his successor you see there on the screen, General C.Q. Brown. You just heard from Milley, uh, just heard Milley call Brown his, quote, new best friend. Milley will officially pass the baton to Brown in a ceremony later this morning at Joint Base Meyer-Henderson Hall in Virginia. We all thank him for his decades of service. Less than 40 hours until the government runs out of money to pay its bills. And there does not seem to be a plan forward from lawmakers to avoid a shutdown. A look at who America thinks is to blame. That's ahead. And six months ago today, Russia wrongfully detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich on espionage charges. His family is speaking out exclusively to CNN. Hear their message next. Welcome back. Today marks six months since Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich has been detained in Russia. Moscow accuses him of espionage, something 
he and his employer vehemently deny, and the U.S. government has declared him to be wrongfully detained in Russia. A court ruled last month that he must stay in jail until the end of November. Gershkovich is the first American journalist detained in Russia on espionage charges since the Cold War. His family joined Anderson Cooper for an exclusive interview last night. Evan is an American boy who loves uh, uh, baseball, American food. He always would come home after um, his uh, fancy trips and wanted to have a hamburger and uh, buffalo wings <laughs> and watch baseball and watch uh, American football. He's uh, an American boy who is, uh, uh, has roots in Russian culture. Joining us now is The Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau Chief Paul Beckett. He's been working with Evan's family, the journal's attorneys and the U.S. government to get Evan released. Paul, uh, I appreciate your time this morning. We appreciate your time this morning. Uh, I know this has been a very long and difficult six months for you, the entire organization, as well as the family. Um, your sense of where things stand right now as you guys continue to try and ensure Evan and his story uh, are constantly uh, taken notice of? Thanks very much, Phil. Yeah, it's a tough day for Evan, for his family, uh, for the journal, and for fans of press freedom everywhere, I think. Uh, the government uh, here says it's you know, engaged in an effort to try and bring Evan and other wrongfully detained people home. Uh, we would like to see more action. Uh, there was a bipartisan resolution released by uh, the Senate last night, led by uh, Senator Rich and uh, Cardin, and calling for his immediate release and for the Biden administration to do more to bring Evan home and end this uh, absurd situation. John Kirby, uh, who, Paul, you know, is the National Security Council's coordinator for strategic communications, um, to your point about doing more, said the U.S. is engaged in the words used are very active discussions with the Russians working to try to secure Evan's release. Can you tell us what more you think they could do right now that they're not? We would just like to see them do everything they can. And we appreciate the comments about they're doing you know, what they can. We would just like to see more. And we are going to say that until every day, until Evan sets yeah. foot back in the United States. I also, I also, Paul, just wanted to show people there's a really powerful letter from his family in, in the paper and on the website today. But this is the, I, I still like papers, paper papers. And this is the journal, right? So the masthead you see above the masthead. And there's a QR code where everyone can scan it for not only to learn more about Evan and his journalism, but ways that, with, that they can help. So you guys are certainly keeping it in the fore. And, and Paul, to, to that point, you know, Evan's journalism, I don't want him to become you know, just another name, just another person on this list. Talk to, to people about his work, what he was doing, including what he was doing when he was detained. As you heard from his mother, uh, he's a sort of unique combination for a foreign correspondent of uh, someone who uh, is American and grew up here but has very deep roots in Russian culture because his parents were uh, Soviet emigres to this country in the 1970s. So he took to Russia a great sensitivity for Russian people, for Russian society, for Russian topics, uh, you know, far beyond just covering the Kremlin or whatever else you'd expect a foreign correspondent to do over there. So he loved listening to Russian punk bands. He watched Russian TV. He went played soccer over there. He really immersed himself in Russian life. And that comes through in his reporting. Uh, one of the most memorable pieces I think that he did that shows that was uh, talking to Russian parents who were receiving the corpses of soldiers back from mm. Ukraine. 
And that's just an angle that you don't see. And really anybody but Evan couldn't have um, done such an amazing job in bringing to life. So he was very much there because of his uh, interest in and love of the country. Yeah, he's an extraordinary talent, and I would urge people, if you haven't, go read his work uh, on the journal's website. Um, it, it just underscores, one, why it is so clear he's wrongfully detained, according to the journal, to his family, to the U.S. government, uh, but also that talent itself and his love for the country that he was covering and is now detained by. Paul Beckett, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. We appreciate yours. Thanks very much. Well, for more than 20 years, Jason Arisi Seibel has been working to give young people with disabilities like himself a brighter future. In 2016, he became the first CNN hero of the year from Latin America. Since then, he's built a brand new rehabilitation center in Cali, Colombia, and has graduated from law school. Now, his organization has realized yet another big dream. We have the first university in Latin America for jóvenes with disability. La universidad ha empezado su primer año con 300 jóvenes estudiando. Cuenta con todos los equipos para que puedan estudiar de una manera accesible la persona con discapacidad. Hemos traído eh, tecnología ocular, por ejemplo, yo quiero ser ingeniero de datos y ayudar a la comunidad mediante la inteligencia artificial. La función está cambiando el concepto de la palabra discapacidad, entendiendo que ellos sí pueden, que ellos son capaces. For the full story and to see all the ways that Jason is transforming lives, just go to cnnheroes.com. Congress careening toward a government shutdown. Who does the public think is at fault? Harry Enten has the latest polling. And Taylor Swift is so powerful that people are willing to pay the New York Jets. That's, that's cold, man, <laughs> to go to go Jets games because she may actually be at the game this weekend. We're going to tell you how high prices are getting. That's ahead. Harsh. This morning, we are learning new disturbing details about the killing of a Baltimore tech executive. And the suspect in her murder court documents show that 26-year-old Pavela Pear died of strangulation and blunt force trauma. Police say she was killed last Friday, but she was not discovered until Monday. That's when they found her body lying on a roof. Officials say surveillance video shows the suspect, Jason Billingsley, following LaPere home. He pretended he forgot his keys to the building and she let him in. Documents also show that Billingsley allegedly raped a woman, slashed her throat, and then set her and her boyfriend on fire September 19th, just three days before killing LaPere. Officials say that is when investigators began tracking Billingsley, who was arrested on Wednesday. Also this morning, a new warning about a popular weight loss drug, the Food and Drug Administration, now acknowledging reports of blocked intestines in people using the diabetes drug Ozempic. The FDA, FDA updated the label of the medication this week, warning users of possible intestinal blockage. The warning was already on the label of Ozempic's sister drug, Wagovi, which is approved for weight loss. Both drugs have soared in popularity recently. Ozempic's manufacturer, Novo Nordisk, said in a statement they stand, quote, behind the safety and efficacy of Ozempic, and all of our medicines when used consistent with the product labeling and the approved indications. The company went on to say they are working closely with the FDA to continuously monitor the safety profile of its medications. Congress likely heading to a government shutdown tomorrow. The American people will have to live with the effects. What does the public think in terms of who's at fault? 
Joining us now at the wall, our senior data reporter, Harry Enton. Who did they blame? Yeah, I think this one was a bit of a surprise to me, given, I think, what the conventional wisdom is. So there have been a number of polls on this. So who would you mainly blame for a government shutdown? Actually, the plurality blamed Joe Biden or the Democrats in Congress at 39 percent, the GOP in Congress at 33 percent, both equally at 22. But in the two polls that I have seen, when you combine Biden and the congressional Democrats, more voters blame them than blame Republicans in Congress. And that is very different than what we've seen in prior shutdowns. So who is the public blame for, blame for prior shutdowns? Republicans in 95, 96, Republicans in 2013, and Republicans in 2018, 19. So this may be a shutdown that is quite different than that in terms of the public blame, because at least at this point, more Americans say they'll blame Biden and or the Democrats in Congress. So, Harry, do people want their lawmakers to compromise or do they want them to hold firm when it comes to spending? Yeah, so there's a bit of a split here. Congresspersons who think like you should compromise to avoid a shutdown. Overall, 64% say that's what they want. Only 31% say they want their folks to stick to their principles. But look among Republicans. We have a dead split right here, 50%, 46%. And so I think that's a big part of what you're seeing in Congress right now, with some Republicans wanting that compromise and some saying, no, you should stick to your principles. But of course, I don't think it's really that surprising that the two sides can't come to an agreement here, because the fact is, this has been a Congress in which nothing has gotten passed, just 14 bills and resolutions, an all-time low since 1973. Normally through this point, the average is 70. So a Congress that isn't getting anything done doesn't seem to be getting anything done once again. So to me, not really much of a surprise at this point. Consistent, though. Very Good consistent. Thing. I like consistency, Phil, but perhaps not in this case. Harry Enton, appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thank you. Well, we all know Harry will be watching his Buffalo Bills this weekend, but will he also tune in to the Jets game on Sunday night? Not to watch the Jets, to see Taylor Swift potentially cheering on the Chiefs. And after a huge loss against Oregon last weekend, Deion Sanders in Colorado is facing another uphill battle. Can the Buffaloes upset the USC Trojans? We're going to ask an expert. Stay with us. Shout out to Taylor for uh, for pulling up. That was pretty ballsy. That was pretty ballsy. Yeah, <laughs> I um, I just thought it was awesome how everybody in the suite had nothing but great things to say about her. It is the mystery that continues to grip the nation. Are Taylor Swift and Chief star Travis Kelsey actually dating? Well, the answer to that is still apparently anyone's guess. The pop star's simple presence at NFL games is already having an impact on ticket sales. After Swift's appearance in Kansas City last weekend, rumors of her possible attendance at this Sunday's game to see Kelsey play New York Jets has sent ticket prices soaring. The average cost for tickets to MetLife Stadium on Sunday are up more than 40% from $83 to $119 proving once again that the economic impact of Taylor Swift is for real. Joining us is CNN contributor Carrie Champion. Um, I, need, I, need, I need to know where you are on this. Where, <laughs> just writ large. In, at large. Okay, well, first and foremost, I will say this. I, I, I love that everyone doesn't really want to talk about it because they feel as if it's not interesting. But as I have said several times on this network, it's a scotch interesting. Um, and it's and the reason why it is is because it's just pure, simple fun to see this Taylor Swift effect. Now, we didn't believe that they were dating. That's still a question mark. We have seen the photos of them hanging out post-game. But I feel like this is something that's really good for the league twofold, twofold. 
fold. We're getting more female fans watching the game. That's one thing. And the second thing is, isn't it just nice to enjoy some good old American dating? Isn't it nice to take a break from some things that just are just too, too, too heavy in life and this makes us feel good about it? Is it not? I'm with this. I'm excited for it. I want it to happen. <laughs> Can we talk? Okay. First of all, we, we well. have been talking about this every day on That's this the right program. take. So <laughs> apparently people are interested in it. Phil Mattingly far more than I. I do love them both, though. I, I got to interview Travis Kelsey's mom before the Super Bowl, so I'm a big fan of his mom, big Taylor fan. Uh, can we move on to college football and Deion yes. Sanders and yes. what they're going to try to do this weekend, trying to get back on the right page after last weekend? Everyone... You know, he certainly thinks he's the best coach in college football. Let's remind everyone what he told 60 Minutes. Okay. Who's the best coach in college football today? Let me see. Let me see a mirror so I can look at it. <laughs> you feel that? What? You think I'm going to sit up here and tell you somebody else? You think, you think that's the way I operate? That somebody else got that on me? So? Carrie, does he do it this weekend? The team comes back? No, no, they won't. In fact, I, I can guarantee that they more than likely, and I'll come on the show if I'm wrong, they more okay. than likely will not win this game. Um, but what I will say is, by saying he is the best coach in college football, Dion is essentially saying, I very similar to the Taylor Swift effect. The, the prime effect is real. College football ratings are up 14%. The fact that people are going to boulder Colorado as the epicenter for college sports is something that you can't say normally happens. Perhaps Denver, yes, for the Broncos, but Boulder, not so much. Um, he's taken a team that won one game last season, one game, and they have been able to, within the first three weeks of college football, mark the highest ratings of a college football game because of Prime, because of what he believes in. And so when he says he's a great coach, he is a great motivator in that, arguably the best that we've seen thus far. But I can't say that his team will, will beat USC. I think it's impossible because of the fact that they have a better personnel, especially that roster. And I think that's important for people to understand. What happened yes, last week against Oregon and what's likely going to happen this weekend is not a reflection on whether or not he's a great coach or not. That's a reflection of personnel and reality. I think the sure. bigger picture of what's happened to that program, the attention that it's drawn, that more than anything else is what matters. You are 100% correct, Phil. We haven't seen anything like it. There is a reason why there is a celeb list that is unheard of. You think of the likes of a Will Ferrell. Yes, he went to USC, but a Jay-Z, um, a Snoop Dogg. Uh, you have actors who were coming out, other professional athletes coming out just to essentially, um, and I don't know what a better way to say, touch the hem of his garment. You know, he, right. he has a wonderful effect. All right, Carrie, we've got some breaking news. We're going to turn to that. Thank you very much. And Breaking news is what we want to discuss right now. This is CNN Breaking News. Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California has died. She was 90 years old. CNN's Lauren Fox is here with more. Lauren, what do we know at this point? Yeah, we are still getting more information, Phil, but what we know right now is that Senator Dianne Feinstein, the longest serving woman in the U.S. Senate, she has passed away. Obviously, we are still getting details and gathering information about her passing, how it occurred. We've known for a long time that Senator Feinstein has struggled with several health issues, but she has continued to serve in her capacity, both as a senator and on the Senate Judiciary Committee, where her vote has been 
and essential to moving forward with the Biden administration's judicial nominees over the last several years and last several months in particular. Senator Dianne Feinstein has a long legislative history and record, including the fact that she was the architect of the 1994 assault weapons ban. Fighting gun violence has been a key issue for Senator Feinstein over the course of her career. She was also the first woman to serve as the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and she fought even against her Democratic colleagues to release details of the enhanced interrogation techniques that were used under the Bush administration, going toe-to-toe with the Obama administration in trying to get the public more informed about what had occurred during those years in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. So obviously, she is someone who has a long legislative history, a long career, someone who is obviously going to be very missed by her colleagues. But as I noted, she has been struggling with health issues over the last several months. She was absent from the Senate for many months as she fought shingles and complications from shingles. She returned to the Senate and had struggled at times with her role on the Senate uh, Judiciary and Appropriations Committee. Specifically, a few months ago, she was struggling, you know, to vote on a, on a vote uh, in the Senate Appropriations Committee. So it is something that has come to pass, but we are still getting more details about Senator Dianne Feinstein's passing. And Lauren, thank oh. you for the breaking news. Please stay with us, as I believe we also have our colleague Casey Hunt on the phone. Casey, can you hear us? Hey, guys. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, you think about her service, 31 years in the Senate, elected in 92, longest serving uh, woman senator ever. Lauren talked about the work that she did, really the architect of the assault weapons ban back in 1994. A huge uh, voice as well when it came to the push to legalize gay marriage. As We'll get to the health in a moment, but just help us remember the woman and the senator. Absolutely, Poppy. I mean, I, you know, Lauren touched on this a little bit, and I know, you know, Phil can speak to this too. Uh, you know, he and I often were in the halls together uh, talking with Senator Feinstein. I mean, she really was a legend, an icon for women in politics. Uh, and she is someone who, uh, you know, was breaking ground from the beginning when she was first working uh, in San Francisco with Harvey Milk and some of the, you know, kind of original. Um, battle over rights for uh, gay uh, Americans. And, uh, you know, she is somebody who uh, had just an incredibly storied career from there, uh, you know, rising to national prominence. And, you know, Lauren outlined a couple of the things that she really uh, took the lead on. You know, I I remember in particular her work uh, on the Intelligence Committee and when she was focusing in on some of the things that had happened in the course uh, of the Iraq War and how she really uh, took that on in a way that that took political courage uh, at the time uh, and really uh, stood out and uh, was very uh, forceful uh, in how she reckoned with that. But, you know, again, Poppy, I, I, I think it, she really blazed a trail at a time when there were not very many women role models uh, in politics uh, for others to follow. It was a very very tough uh, road for her uh, in the beginning. And she is someone who, you know, Nancy Pelosi, for example, uh, she would have been an example for Pelosi, also uh, of San Francisco. Uh, And she did, of course, uh, come in for some criticism from Democrats uh, near the end uh, of her life because she was grappling with with those health challenges, as you know, you're seeing a little bit of 
uh, on your screen now um, here. But I, I do think that on this particular day, you're correct to focus in on kind of what she yeah. meant uh, in such a broad way to to so many people. And the ground that she broke for so many people. Phil, you were the chief congressional correspondent. Just your thoughts on her. I, I mean, I think Casey's point, I think your point, this is important here. There's been so much focus on the health uh, and the age and everything. People need to think about who the senator was, obviously passing away at 90. But not only was she a, a titan in the Senate uh, and kind of in a class of, of female legislators that changed the dynamic and the face of the institution as well uh, in its entirety, over the course of her career from when she was at the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, mm -hmm. the first president of the Board of Supervisors, the reason she became mayor of San Francisco was because of the shooting death that included Harvey Milk, but also the mayor at the time and her rise within San Francisco um, and to where she became such a powerful chair of multiple committees. Um, focus on that. That is so much more important and so much more central uh, to her career and to her life than I think what has been a difficult last couple of months. And the will, um, Lauren brought it up in Casey as well, of her during the Obama administration to say, no, the public needs to know what happened and to push against some of those even in her own party with that torture report also speaks to that will. You talk about legacy items and legacy issues. That is a central pillar of what will be remembered about her and what she did as a U.S. senator and as a legislator. Yeah, and we thank her for her decades of service to this country. All our thoughts with her family. We will continue this breaking news coverage. The death of Senator Dianne Feinstein continues now with CNN News Central. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.